Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I am Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And we have a lot, a lot of Magic cards to talk about, my friend. Yeah, this is a dramatically accelerated release schedule from what we used to deal with. I think we got to the point when we were doing preview shows that we actually backed off them a little bit because we felt like we were stretching them out for too long and just spending weeks and weeks talking about cards before we could actually play with it. Now the set gets announced, you see the first card, and then the next week you have 180 cards in front of you, and then the next week it's over and you're playing with the set. It just goes so, so fast. Just pump it directly into my veins, man. I'm down with it. I mean, it's it's information overload in a lot of ways, but in the best way possible. It's all the possibilities of these new cards exploding at once. And it's often a lot to keep track of, but like, again, in the most exciting way possible. As a person who makes content on a week-to-week basis, the old content schedule was a little bit slow at times because mm-hmm. you will be like, okay, I'm going to build around this card but you still you have very far from uh, a complete picture of what's going to be going on in the set and now i think it moves maybe a little bit too fast so if you could stretch it out maybe just by like three more days or something like that to give us time to process because i feel like a lot of stuff gets lost in the shuffle but maybe that's a good thing i guess like you don't have everything kind of like figured out right when the set drops so Yeah, it's certainly a more compact window to take advantage of hype, right? It used to be you'd get excited about this card, and then after four weeks, it's like, well, my excitement has kind of died down. I've heard enough about, you know, Snapcaster Mage or whatever card you're excited about that got spoiled in week one. And that was always a little awkward. So on the whole, I, I would take this mode of information dispersal over the old way of doing things. Me too. All right, so we are... Going to go uh, alphabetical by color. We are on Scryfall. So if you just go there, click on the Zendikar Rising preview, sort by color. You can follow along if you would like to. Other than that, I'm going to be starting at the bottom real quick because I feel like these are going to come up a little bit as we talk about various things. These are the pathways. So we have six, I believe six, effectively, you know, dual lands. You know, they don't tap for like red or green at the same time, but they're 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 dual lands to me, you know? Yeah, they're filling the dual land slot. And whenever we have quote unquote dual lands, we have to do the what is this better than? What is this worse than? How does this change things? It's, it's a dance we've done many, many times. As far as my ranking of these dual lands, I'm putting them I think somewhere squarely in the middle. They're Interesting. I like that there's a decision to be made. They are, in terms of raw power, below a lot of the other stuff we've seen lately. Like they're not as impactful as things like Shocklands or Fetchlands, obviously. They're not the focus of eternal mana bases. That's what I look at in terms of the flag bearers for dual land power. They're going to fit some way into an eternal mana base. Uh, even things like Trilands, the cycling triomes, you see a point where you're like, okay, with these basic land types stapled on and the cycling ability, you could see a way for these to push back into older formats. I don't see that much here with the very, very notable exception of Pioneer and Historic, where these are going to play a very important role. But that's as far back as I think they can go. They can't go into Modern or Legacy or anything like that. 
I could I could see them in in modern maybe definitely not legacy but I mean both formats are so heavily defined by fetch and like actual dual land mana bases that it's difficult for anything to actually slip in there but mm-hmm. anyway I guess I I should probably say what these do these are uh, thank you basically DFCs there's not one for every two color pair they're just here for the like tribes that are supported so. Uh, for example, Clearwater Pathway, the front side is a land that taps for blue. The back side is a land that taps for black. They don't have uh, basic land types. And if you're like searching your library for a land, I believe you can only get the front side, which would make sense to me. Uh, so it's kind of weird in in that regard. But once, once you play with them, I, th- I think it's just going to be very easy to... I don't know. Get the hang of it. Get used to it. Okay. I, this is something that I actually hadn't thought about until this moment. If I were to, say, play a Primeval Titan and wanted to go get Pathways, you're saying I could only get the side that is identified by a single triangle in the top left. Uh, I believe so. Okay. Because that's, that's the front side. So d- don't, don't quote me on that. I, I read the... Uh, Matt Tabak rules thing. And he mostly talked about the cards that are like an instant with the backside of a land or whatever. Right. And that the rules for those were it's, it's the front side. If you're searching for a land, you can't get the backside. Yeah. If you're searching, that, that seems clear to me. You know, yeah. So I, it makes sense that you would only be able to get the front side of these. Right. Okay. It's, it's weird. I mean, saying it makes sense is, extending it more credit than I would, but saying that's the rule I'm willing to accept. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but if that's the way they work, that's the way they work. Yeah. So it's very corner case regardless, but like, right. I, I assumed the rule extended to these as well. Yep. I, I think that's fair. It's unlikely this will come up putting these directly into play in many s- scenarios. So these are not basic land types. So if you were going to do things like, I don't know, play a close to mono blue deck or say you even were playing a mono blue deck. There, there isn't a lot of downside to like not playing these instead of an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is actually some non-basic land hate in this set, which is gas. Yeah. But I, I'm trying to think of like a very fringe scenario where it's like you have like an off-color activation or something for a thing that you might not normally use, but now you can kind of free roll that and not really get punished by it. But yeah, uh, yeah. B- building with these has been pretty fun too, where, I don't know, like my article this week was about Omnath, which we'll talk about towards the end of the cast when we get to the multicolored cards. But at that point, it was just like kind of trivial to, to cast like this four different colored mana card. And the Pathways had a lot to do with that. And obviously the Triumphs do, but... Yeah, Pathways, I think, are just very, very good. Like you said, Historic, Pioneer. Like, Pioneer was definitely missing. It felt like it was missing a set of dual lands, especially for Agrodex, and he's kind of solved that problem. And I don't know. Like You said you you would put them towards the middle of duels. I would want to put them higher, but we've also had a lot of really good dual lands. So Mm -hmm. How about, I'll give you a few to compare them to. What about, say, the Fast Lands from Kaladesh or Scars of Meriden? I, I mean, they're they're different, but pretty similar. Like, 
if I were playing a mid-range deck, I, I would want the pathway probably every time. But okay. as far as like an aggro deck, I don't think you really care unless you have very strange mana cost requirements, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think these are up there in power level, like comparable to those. Okay, so Scars of Merida and Fastlands are kind of where I see the breakpoint for these are the really powerful dual lands. And I would have these just below them. So okay. I, I think we're close to evaluations, but you know, maybe splitting hairs a little bit. The one point you mentioned, like the off-color activations, the thing that immediately popped to my mind is the situations where like a near mono red deck often would play a fetch land mana base and then have like a stomping ground to be able to reliably cast Ancient Grudge. Right. And it seems super easy to just get like your Crag Crown pathway in the mix and then have another additional source of green, which are almost, almost always going to play as just a red source, but there's very little downside to having that emergency green source should you need it. Yeah, and some of those decks had Copperline Gorge in them, right? Like I distinctly yeah. remember playing Mono Red Hollow 1 with that sort of mana base and Copperline Gorge definitely screwed you at times where mm-hmm. there were turns where you wanted to like flashback looting and then play a one mana card or whatever. And the copper line gorge is the land you drew. And I mean, there, there are definitely instances too in a deck like that where you want all of your lands to tap for red. So I don't know, playing the pathway as a green producing land on the back end could mess you up when you're trying to go like, you know, looting, discard fiery temper lightning bolt whatever yeah so i still think it's worse than the fast lands in those scenarios but like there are definitely instances where you know the pathway is just better and especially for anything like granted jund has like very strict mana requirements right like Mm. you're trying to play bold thoughtsies on turn one and liliana and have as many green sources for scavenging use and stuff like that like obviously they would like the pathway to always be able to like blood braid on turn four or activate raging ravine. If you draw your fifth land and stuff like that, I think, I think they need the fast land, but I'm sure there are mid range decks out there. Like any sort of uh, like Uro controlling type of deck would much rather just have a pathway than a fast land. Sure. Uh, it's an interesting decision that's going to come up a bunch. And that's what I really like about them. It's not just a, Slam dunk, this is the best possible option. There are real costs, real drawbacks with these dual lands, and there's going to be decisions to be made on multiple turns. And I think that's the best case scenario, and it's more likely to lead to interesting games of magic rather than just a mana base, which is 100% functional all the time or fails to function in a bunch of games and doesn't actually allow you to play the game. So this is kind of the best of both worlds. Right. I, I mean, bottom line is I'm, I'm happy that these are here to help aggro. I think that I don't know, compared to last season or whatever, these are clearly not Shocklands, right? And that is effectively what they are replacing for aggro mana bases. I I would have loved to see these last season to try and help different aggro decks. But I don't know, maybe maybe we'll get some other untapped duels and help aggro. But uh, right now, this is kind of all we got. And then it's like Temples and Triumphs and Fable Passage and stuff. So we might not have like true multicolored aggro decks like monocolored aggro i think will still be fine but yeah a little bit of a skip ahead here but if you're looking for aggro savior in the set uh i haven't found it yet i don't i don't know your opinion is maybe you'll be higher on some of these cards for aggressive purposes than i am but looking through the list of things we're talking about it's more mid-range magic for the most part yeah 
I see some playable one drops, which makes me happy. Uh, there's there's one one drop I am excited about thus far, and I am not even sure it's going to cross the line to playable. But again, we're getting there. We're going to talk about all these cards. Right. We have a big, long list to go through. All right. Starting with white, we have Archon of Amiria. This is uh, two dub for a two, three Archon flying. Each player can't cast more than one spell each turn. Non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield taps. And we get to start with the card that is definitely going to stretch back in older formats and also is the thing that punishes you for just playing pathways because, you know, you're cool and have a full art one and didn't want to play basic island or whatever yeah you always have to make sure you get that splash hate and uh obviously you're going to immediately be reminded of thalia uh the second thalia thalia what is it cathar heretic is that the heretic most recent of thalia? Cathar, yeah so that immediately comes to mind as a way to blunt your opponent's mana progress but that first clause seems real big when you get back to older formats and i think even in standard that could be meaningful as well these decks that are so good at producing large amounts of mana, they are more likely to benefit from being able to multi-spell than the white aggressive deck will. And they're kind of getting it two ways. They're getting slowed down in their mana progression. And when they finally do have the mana, double spell turns might be a thing of the past. So this is pretty exciting. The power is a point lower than I want it to be, given the context of how powerful the mid-range stuff is. Uh, I think there's like room for this to be even a little bit better if just your typical mono white aggressive strategy is going to succeed. But like you said, it feels like this is a card that's going to reach back further than make a immediate standard impact without some other really big pieces coming into the fray for white based aggressive decks. Right. And I mean, the the non non-basic land clause, like there's Fable Passage and there's the Pathways, but other than that, a lot of the non-basics already ETB tapped. So you're yeah, not really, point. yeah, you're not really gaining a whole lot of advantage from it there. Uh, since the each player can't cast more than one spell each turn is is communal, it does seem like this is a little understated. And I don't know, you said that the like multi-spell thing doesn't really matter that much for aggro decks, but it, like it depends what kind of deck you're playing, right? If you're playing something with 20 white one drops like that ability is probably going to mess you up at various times. Um, so you, you definitely want to like play out your hand and then play this and then hopefully it doesn't actually screw you. But I don't know. There, there are setups where you could be playing some sort of like uh, flash ish deck, you know, maybe like blue white flyers or something. So you have some sort of flash threat so that you're not completely locked under this. Hmm. Yeah. I like that approach. That's an interesting way to do it. Also, allows you to effectively leverage counter magic in a flash shell because your opponent's only casting one spell a turn. So answer that, move on, play the next turn. There's some some niche applications for this beyond just beating down. My thought was just like, if your deck is all one drops and you've played them all at the time you're playing Archon and you've already invested all your resources onto the battlefield and this is just like your way of going all in. But I am not sure that style of ma magic works presently. So... Maybe that's not what we're actually trying to achieve here. Yeah, you need you need the payoffs, and we don't have them. You know, yeah. I, I I was thinking like venerated loxodon type of stuff, where you would always play multiple spells per turn, and that's just not really what white has access to at the moment. It does seem like a little bit more mid rangey, and yeah, uh, you know, that's probably why it's not doing very well. So, right. Uh, next up, we do have a one drop archpriest of Iona. This dub for a star to 
human cleric. And its power is equal to the number of creatures in your party. And your party consists of up to one of each cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard. So it's dub for a one-two at least. And at beginning of combat on your turn, if you have a full party, target creature gets plus one, plus one, and gains flying until end of turn. So starting stats, one mana for a one-two should be pretty easy to get this up to a 2-2. Anything beyond that is pretty nice for a one-mana investment and definitely makes me interested in seeing what you can do with party. And I'm hoping that the party stuff doesn't really stretch out into a lot of colors in order to make it work. Like I would love to be able to just play like mono white and get good value from this or even like a two-color deck or whatever, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, that is the entirety, basically, of my party assessment. How much am I actually working for it, and how much can you get it almost incidentally by just playing like a bunch of good white creatures, and it turns out, oh, I'm crossing these types anyway uh, by virtue of what's present in the format. And obviously, there will be some constraints, and you know, this mechanic isn't interesting if you just get all these payoffs by playing natural magic, like you should have to make some decisions to get there. It's just a question of how costly they're going to be. And right now they feel a little too costly for them to make a huge impact in constructed, but we only have half this set and we're at the absolute smallest point for standard. And these are common creature types. These aren't really rare things to see on just random creatures. So as the format gets bigger and bigger, I think this party stuff is going to scale And that's cool. That's a cool way to plant stuff for the future. And I have a feeling we're often going to be doing party checks as we move through the next year of standard and saying, oh, this actually fills out a party if you're playing this card. And it's it's nice to be able to refresh our assessment of party with each given set. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, this set also has what looks like tribal support for each instance of the thing that counts for party. So yeah. Like this is a cleric, it could fit into a cleric deck. You don't necessarily have to go full party. Maybe, you know, you have a card that you want to play that isn't a cleric and fulfills like the wizard role or whatever. So you actually can maybe make this in, into a 2-2 two, two at some point. But yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Like for limited, this seems cool, like the party mechanic. And then for constructed, as far as like doing the research and figuring out what's what, it's, just, it's so much tracking. It just kind of gives me a headache. I feel that. Uh, I, I think the good news is that full parties are going to be very rare and the cards, the party cards that are good are going to be the ones that just get a nice little boost on their own, like Archpriest of Iona. It's very easy to envision this just routinely being a 2-2 and having rare circumstances where it really goes off the charts. And I think that's going to be enough to let it see some play. Yep, definitely agree. Uh, next card is Amiria's Call, which uh, the front side is a very expensive sorcery. I'm going to read the backside here real quick uh this is a land and as it enters the battlefield you may pay three life if you don't it enters the battlefield tapped and it taps for white mana and a lot of these cards are just lands that etb tapped and tap for a color so this one you at least have the option obviously it's very expensive but uh amiria's call is four dub 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 so seven mana total sorcery Create two four four white angel warrior creature tokens with flying. Non-angel creatures you control gain indestructible until your next turn. For some sort of mid-rangey creature deck, this is completely reasonable to play 
as a land that, you know, if you're planning on getting to seven mana in most games, like you at least have something to do. So these are the, the kind of cards that I think are very cool in the set where, you know, you're probably not going to start with four copies of this thing. Cause like, why the hell would you ever want four copies of this thing? But if you're like waffling between, should I play 24 or 25 land? I mean, now you kind of have your answer. I think it's going to answer that question a lot. And the other question I think it's going to answer is how can I build a traditional mid-range deck that can exist in a world where Uro is the best thing to be doing? I talked a lot about the ability of Uro and its 28 land, 30 land mana bases to allow you to participate in every single game of Magic. You just have certainty that you're going to make your land drops to the point that when you fail to do so it's almost laughable like you're like okay i wasn't meant to win that game i didn't hit my third land drop in my 32 land deck what are we going to do about it let's move on play 35 land yeah well that might be the answer now in in order for a deck that isn't flirting with that type of mana base to be able to achieve the same levels of consistency that the euro decks did you have to have stuff like this like this is the only way to keep pace and to make me feel like I'm not throwing away huge portions of my tournament equity by leaving some percentage of my fate up to, did I draw enough lands to participate in this game? You should make the answer yes every single time now. In some ways, you're going to find answers in this set to get yourself up to a land count where you have emergency plans. And is playing a tapped land going to be acceptable in all scenarios? Absolutely not. It's going to be a huge cost. But when the alternative is, I didn't make my third land drop and now I'm participating in this game on just a completely different scale than my opponents because the cards are so powerful now. If you are stuck playing two drops and your opponent's playing three and four drops, you can't keep pace. It's not possible to catch up anymore. You really need to consistently be moving along towards the mid and late game. Uh, And these cards are going to play a large role in that. I think there's a possibility of like 36 virtual land decks existing and being the absolute best thing you can do in the format because they will play every single game. And when you're looking for tournament results and consistency, you need to have a plan to participate in every single game. The more of this stuff there is, the the more we're going to see that. And it's kind of like this really mixed bag for me because I see the benefit of getting people to participate in more games of Magic and... You know, London Mulligan is the same way, right? Like it's supposed, to, it's designed to let people play their cards and to always feel like they have some agency over the result. But the problem is if you allow too much agency into the equation, then you just get to do what you want every single game. And that moves all games to the same static endpoints. Whereas the inconsistency of mana introduced all these wild cards to games of magic. And they were memorable games. You remembered the games where you were stuck on two lands forever. You barely hung on and then you finally drew that third land and you started turning the corner like that was important to the overall experience of magic and it's been missing from standard for a while now and i think this is going to continue that trend and i'm slightly concerned i'm I'm not i don't want it to sound like i'm sounding the alarms that's not my intention here i just think there is a burden of proof on this mechanic to work and i'm willing to be very happy when they meet that burden of proof. Like they've thought about it carefully and this does actually make the game better. That's a completely reasonable scenario. I can see it happening, but I haven't played with these cards yet. And just as an abstract theoretical exercise, I see the potential for flaws in setting up games of magic in this way. 
Yeah, I got I got two things. Uh, I, I agree with you that it's kind of scary. And one of the things I don't like is how it potentially takes away the dynamic of sizing as far as like deck composition goes where, you know, maybe maybe you're like a, a white-ish aggro deck that like normally goes up to like five mana spells and you're like, well, I'm going to play this uh, Sultai mid-range deck, right, from, from last season, something similar to that where it's like, well, now I get to strategically just like go over the top of you and that is a conscious choice I made in order to try and have a, a better matchup against this deck and a good run in this specific tournament. And then cards like Amiria's Call, which, you know, it's it's not it's not like a great card. You wouldn't play seven mana and make two four fours, you know, just normally. But the fact that like it's a land, you kind of get to free roll it. And then you have this bigger top end in your deck basically just for free. Like as far as decks being able to continue to play magic, that's that's great. I think that's a, a fine notion and something to strive for. But it also doesn't really make sense to me to then give these decks that would otherwise, you know, not play this type of card, that type of card, right? Because, you know, they're they're already going to be not running out of gas as often as they would, but now they get to scale better into the late game too. And it just kind of like pushes everything together. Yeah, I, I think you're I think we're saying the exact same thing. And yeah. you're you're kind of exposing another side of the coin. And let's be honest too, if we rewind two years and you introduce this mechanic to me, I go, wow, I, I see the potential for flaws, but I am sure they have vetted this out and <laughs> thought about it and know exactly what they're doing. And I can't wait to play with it. And let's let's go. We're off to the races. Now having been through the last year and a half. I said that a few times. I said that about once upon a time. And I said that about companions. And now I'm I'm sure it's fine. Sure. It's fine. Yeah. I'm just not willing to say that anymore. Like I I think mistakes can be made and that's fine. I I forgive people for mistakes. You know, that's just part of part of the game, part of game design. Sometimes mistakes happen, Uh, but I'm not willing to have the same blind faith that, oh, this is definitely well vetted. And they have unpacked all these potential outcomes of, congealing the game around the same endpoints over and over it it just has me a little nervous and i'm going to play with it and see where i fall on it that's that's where i stand now uh so my second thing in regards to these cards is there there are things like explore right which is relevant because it's in historic and that is draw a card you get an extra land drop and then recently we've had things like grow spiral rest in peace and uro where Instead of giving you a land drop, it says you can put a land from your hand onto the battlefield. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure this also doesn't work with the backside of the, the DFCs. That that I know is correct. Okay. So yeah, if you if you like Uro into one of these things, that's that's not great. That's kind of yes. a feel bad. And all it also means that you have to be very, very careful with your sequencing in the early turns. So Yeah, another good point. But I mean, I think that's further evidence of potential for 32, 36 land decks yeah. is that you're not counting them towards your your Uro numbers. So they're just this weird well, like early game spell you, that... You you can though, because if if you have three lands in your opener and one of these, it does mean that you still get to hit Uro as long as you're committed to you know playing this thing early. 
Okay, so so they do a weird mix of both in a lot of ways, like you're kind of squeezed from both sides. It just means when you have uh, three mana and you're jamming Uro and this is the card that you draw, you don't actually get the Uro benefit. Right. But I I don't know. I mean, at that point, you'd have to draw another land that ETB's untapped in order to have five mana on the next turn. So it's possible that you're like not really missing out that much. So I don't know. The, these are the tensions I don't think I have a sense of yet, and I, I can't really speak towards and how much they're going to impact whether you just jam your deck full of potential lands so you get access to every single game. And that's why I'm still like holding my tongue a little bit on a judgment of these cards. Yeah, I was more so speaking to, you know, if if we already think that these are kind of a bad idea, then you add like this little wrinkle to it where it's like, y'all knew Uro was going to be a thing, right? And is this is this meant to be like an Uro nerf to some degree, or is it's yeah. just going to create feel bad moments, pretty similar to like Narset and Teferi and stuff like that? And I I don't like that. That's just not like I don't I don't necessarily think it's like bad game design or whatever, but it like definitely creates feel bad moments that interrupt the the funness and the enjoyment of you playing the game, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Anyway, Skyclave Apparition. One dub dub, (laughs) two two, creature, core spirit. When this enters the battlefield, exile up to one target, non-land, non-token permanent you don't control with converted mana cost four or less. When this leaves the battlefield, the exiled card's owner creates an XX blue illusion creature token where X is the CMC of the exiled card. So you get a... Small exile from this thing. They never get the thing back. And then when your thing dies, they get uh, an illusion. And Nick Prince and I have had a nice little dialogue over the last few days where he sends me a screenshot of Archpriest of Iona, you know, and he's just like back on my BS or whatever. And then the next day sends me a picture of this thing. And I'm just like, not a party member. Sorry, I don't care. You know, <laughs> and then the the Archon got previewed today. So I sent him a text with that thing and he was like, gas, I'm in. And then a couple seconds later, he's like, wait, not a party member. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. but like now we're at a point where there are enough good non-party things to justify not playing party. Right. So, yeah, this is just like a, a good old fashioned magic card that isn't reliant on the 10 other pieces around it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And. I, I don't know. I just I think that this card is is very solid, very good. It's similar to things like Baffling End, mm-hmm. where I, I, that's the one that made the three three or whatever when when it died, right? Correct. It's like no matter what, even if they kill this, the thing that you get off of it is not going to be as good as the thing I removed. And especially if you're playing Baffling End alongside like Reflector Mage or something like that, where you have meaningful ways of incidentally dealing with the token. Or ignoring it. It's just like, yeah, it's whatever. This is just all upside. Yeah, I think this card is incredible, actually. It is a level of versatility from these white creatures that you don't usually see. Like, it's pushing into Reflector Mage territory is just a way to, no matter what your opponent's up to, you're going to have good options. Except this is also taking care of problematic Planeswalkers as well, which I think is maybe the biggest get for this card type, is just picking off opposing Planeswalker and like, Okay, control deck, have a stupid 3-3 as opposed to Teferi Time Raveler. What are you going to do now? And that seems like a huge, huge part of the color pie for white to be able to take advantage of. We talked a little bit about what white could do. One of the things we mentioned was Planeswalker Control. 
I think this is a really nice way of achieving that goal. And then you factor in the relevant creature type. Spirits benefits a lot from the printing of this card. And Spirits is already a very real deck across multiple formats. It is fine in Pioneer. It has been good in Modern. I wouldn't say it's particularly good right now, but it's had moments where it's been very strong and maybe could reach that point again. And their bodies are uniquely set up to outscale a ground-based stupid blue illusion. So you're really not going to care about what you're giving them back in most instances. Instead, you've just added an answer to your deck without at all blunting the basic creature quantity you're containing. And then like you used to do this as the spirits deck in modern, but you do it with reflector mage because you needed some mode of interaction that badly. And obviously you lost some of your key spirit synergies. Now you just get skyclave apparition and every spirit you have in your deck matters. You get to go back down collected company paths and always have hits for that. I mean, I won't, but normal people will have hits (laughs) for collected company all the time. And this seems like a huge upgrade across multiple fronts. And like you said, just a good creature on its face that maybe can carve off some metagame space for white decks in general. Yeah, there's there's weird stuff like Search for Iskanta, which granted we haven't seen that in a while, like a little bit in Historic, where it's like, that's a weird permanent type, right? And yeah. this thing just gets to get rid of that. You think of this in the context of modern where, uh, you know, obviously Reflector Mage, your Tarmogoyf is pretty good, but like apparitioning your Tarmogoyf, like that's, that's a huge downgrade and they still have to kill the apparition to get the token and right. you know if your spirits are just going to be a bunch of flyers anyway but yeah killing killing Liliana like there's so many hard to kill permanents that this mm-hmm. takes care of which is awesome it is worth noting though that it's not optional so like if you if you do cast this you do have to exile one of their things I feel like there probably aren't a lot of scenarios where you're going to want to click no on that anyway but you know Something to, to pay attention to. Yeah, if that's they have, interesting. I'm trying to come up with a spot where you could get really burned by that. I don't know. Cer- certainly there's got to be some scenario where they just have like a four mana permanent that's not really doing a whole lot, but you need a body and then they just kill it and get like a get reasonable a four, four clock. Yeah. 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 The thing that immediately came to my mind was I, I've seen too many people in modern foolishly lock themselves under their own blood moon. And now you've put the Skyclave apparition into play and you've you've let them out from under their blood moon. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that could, that could happen. I mean, it's it's one less click on stuff like Arena and after playing a decent amount of historic with like, you know, Gate to the Afterlife being blood a main trigger. It's uh, yeah, it's like come punch on. Blood artist in the face. Can I just auto yes to this always? Like Magic Online finally introduced like that sort of technology. Where it's like, always choose this person as the target or whatever. And it's just like, thank you, finally. And now we we need that stuff on Arena too. Yeah, it's it's weird too with like, I don't know, obviously Jumpstart has complicated things very dramatically, but it felt like they were being very cautious with those type of ads. And Jumpstart in particular has really put some things into Arena that messed up the flow of the game. Blood Artist comes to mind, but... Uh, I mean, Phyrexian Tower is just struggling to be a magic card right now. Just constant struggles. Oh, man. All right. On to blue. Sure. All right. This this card this card makes me a little angry. This is Confounding. You huh? You hate this card. I hate this card. Confounding Conundrum. One U enchantment. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under an opponent's control... If that player had another land enter the battlefield under their control this turn, they return a land they control to its owner's hand. <laughs> Listening to you read that card, it sounded a little bit like a, a Dr. Seuss book. I don't know why it struck me that way, 
but there was a lot of the word control and land being repeated yeah. over and over. Uh, okay. Do your thing. Do your thing. Okay. Tell me why you hate this card so much. Uh, there's there's another quote unquote hate card in this set that is a red two mana enchantment, and they're they're different in their own ways. But both of them seek to stop people from exploiting things that give them fast mana or free spells. And when you're trying to stop someone who is looking to abuse mana in a certain way, the way you should go about doing that is not by paying two mana for an enchantment that doesn't affect the battlefield at all. It's not not really going to get you there. What if it's a cantrip? Are you any more interested now? I what mean, if it's a cantrip you could like blink with Urian later in the game? It, it even has value like that. Your Urian deck probably wants to, I don't know, like play Omen of the Sea or Maze Mind Tome instead of this. Like, sure, this adds to it, whatever. But like, you got to find not, 80 cards. So it, it's easy, dude. Even even after rotation, it's easy. I already, I already ran through this exercise for my article this week. If you're if you're literally not going to do anything else on turn two anyway, okay, sure, do this. But I don't know, like nerfing like their Uro and their Fable Passage if they blow it, like right now, it's not not really a huge deal. It's not something you should be investing a card in. And especially when Gross Spiral was around, like I imagine they expected, well, I guess Gross Spiral was going to rotate anyway, but like, I don't know if, if there's stuff like that where there's like this massive amount of acceleration and you're like, aha, here's this hate card. You spend two mana to do nothing. And if you don't have it immediately on turn two it, or if they already had their accelerant, you just get buried anyway. Like this, this doesn't serve to undo the problem that has happened, right? Here's my take on this card. If ramp were still what it used to be, then I think this might be like a fine solution to it. Like if you go back to the Valakut era and you really want to do something, I'm talking like Valakut and Standard, and you really want to do something to limit that deck, then maybe something like this where half of its deck is just like put extra lands onto the battlefield and that's the end point I'm trying to get to. Or even like stuff like the Hour of Promise decks. Do you think this would have been good against Field of the Dead? Like that, that could be the instance where... I don't know. Even then, that would make sense. It's like, oh, let's un unban field in historic, and then print this card to like hopefully deal with field. Oh, never mind. It was too good. We had to ban it instead. Like, yeah, I I don't think this really lines up against the field style of ramp either. I, I think it is only where ramp is your primary plan, and then you have some huge ridiculous end game that you're spending a bunch of mana on that otherwise rots in your hand if you're not doing your acceleration thing. Whereas field of the dead ramp just played a bunch of games and eventually got Field of the Dead. And, you know, you sideboarded out your Hour of Promise at a bunch of instances. Like, you weren't reliant right. on that card. So you didn't really have to accelerate that much. And also you get to play around this with Growth Spiral. Like, if you time things yeah. properly, you don't get got that way. So having this be your main plan against that, I don't think that really checks out. I, I think this is a fine way to limit traditional ramp. I don't think traditional ramp is how those decks exist anymore. And that's where I think this card misses the mark a little bit. Uh, I also don't like that it's blue. If we're going to nitpick on this card, it feels like, like if this was good against Uro, letting the Uro decks also play it 
seems a little silly to me. And no, that's that's actually good. I actually like that. You like strat. that? I like that strat because it means that if mirrors are popular, people are devoting deck space to things that allow them to beat the mirror, which then, and then you get can, equity and other matchups. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with that. That that's I, fine. But, but I, so I, I certainly see the point though, where it's like, well, the other decks are the ones that are struggling and need the help against Uro, right? So like, why would you not give it to something else? Yeah. It feels a little like roundabout in that way. And maybe like not apparent at first glance, which is what I just fell victim to, but maybe the long-term effect on the format is worth it not being as in your face. Yeah. So basically to sum it up, I feel like this is not, very effective against decks that are trying to put multiple lands onto the battlefield. And it also makes me angry because when there's stuff like, you know, the discourse of like, Uro's too good, Uro in every format, blah, blah, blah. People are going to look at this card and be like, hey, this kind of like stops the Uro thing, right? And then it's like, no, they're, they're just going to like gain their life, cycle their card. Okay, cool. They don't get to put a land on the battlefield, whatever. And then a few turns later, they're going to rebuy their Uro from the graveyard, which the fact that it's a recursive threat is part of the issue. And they didn't accelerate their mana, but you also spent turn two doing nothing, right? Like they're they're still just going to beat you anyway. And this is going to trick people into trying to solve the problem in a way that doesn't work, which makes me upset. Like we used to have like this, the skill tester cards back in the day, right? Like the chimney imps and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that that wasn't very skill testing in a lot of instances, right? It was just like, no, this card is just bad. And this, this card tricks people into having a bad experience, right? Because everyone's complaining about Uro. They put this card in their deck. They still lose to Uro. And then they're just like, what the hell? Yeah. I I think I'm willing to give this card a pass because I see its goal as more narrow than, well, no, maybe I see its goal as wider than just, nerf uro but in the context of a format and not just a format in the context of every format being dominated by uro it does look a little bit off message for that world also there are things like play my fable passage crack it and then your opponent's like well i have this things you have to bounce a land and it's like damn it you know i, I didn't think about that sort of interaction right like yeah. this this the, card the narsa trick yeah exactly this card only leads to like feel bad moments right I don't like that aspect of it at all. And I, I wish there was some way to mitigate that with Fable Passage being such an important card in the format. That's not good to persistently be making that awareness check. But if the card is as bad as you say, then that's unlikely to come up often anyway, right? Well, part... <laughs> so either this this card exists and sees no play and it's it's whatever, like why, why was this a card that got printed? Or it's a card that exists and does see some play and then that sort of stuff happens but its efficacy is super low, which sucks. Or people do just play a bunch of it, maybe because it's good with Urian or whatever. I don't know. And then this this happens with Fable Passage. It's not a feel-good. But like if people are playing it in small numbers, the Fable Passage thing is going to happen more frequently than if people played it a lot, right? Well, <laughs> no, I want to agree with that. But as someone who just jammed draw spells into Narset for a year and oh, a half, I, I don't know if I can for I, sure say that. I want to know what my final count is. It's honestly. bad. Mine's mine's so bad. It's it's at least twenty. I would feel completely awful and like clueless about it if I hadn't watched every other great magic player I know just do it routinely, like over and over. Yeah. And I also had Narset in like all of my decks too, which makes it even worse, probably. But yeah. whatever. It's just something you should have wrapped your head around and just never clicked for whatever reason. 
Shout out Into the Royal. Uh, it's a reprint. It's a dope magic card. One of my favorites, but we're not going to talk about it. Didn't make the list. I didn't even see that had been previewed. And now I am also excited about Into the Royal. I've played that it's, card a lot. It's in Korean. Okay. I see it next to Jace Mirror Mage. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, Merfolk Wind Robber. You, 1-1. One, one. Creature, Merfolk Rogue, flying. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, that player mills a card. Sacrifice this, draw a card, activate this ability only if an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. This is it, dude. This is the stuff. Rogues look dope. I am excited to put together my rogue decks. I don't have to say a ton about it because we're going to talk about more rogues and then I'll I'll just keep going into it there. But I agree with you. This is an important part of your rogue strategy. And one of your two one drops, the other one was a plant in Corset 2021. Thank you, Corset, for setting the stage for us. Yeah, uh, we, we still have Drown in the Lock, so mm-hmm. the, the milling stuff is good, and you know that I was already working on Demir Flash type of stuff, so this is exactly the card I wanted, basically. Nice. So I'm very happy. Yeah, this is a cool card. Uh, next up, Seagate Stormcaller, 1U, 2-1, Creature, Human, Wizard, Kicker, 4U. When this enters the battlefield, copy the next instant or sorcery spell with converted mana cost two or less. You cast this turn when you cast it. If this was kicked, copy that spell twice instead. You may choose new targets for the copies. Snapcaster, blah, blah. I, I think this you card... You don't sound that excited. I think this card mostly stinks. So, I'm seeing a lot of discourse on the Twitter page, which is what I call it now because I'm old about people being very angry that some people don't think this card is good. And until this moment, I hadn't actually seen anyone say this card isn't good. And now you are the first person who wants to make the Seagate Stormcaller. It's not that good argument to me, so I would like to hear it fleshed out a little bit. Okay. So on its face, two mana, two one, whatever. As far as standard applications are concerned, the strength of this card is dependent on how many strong instants or sorceries that you can copy with this. Right now, I don't think we have a lot. Uh, I also, I don't know. I I feel like the body itself is definitely not good. So you basically always have to use the ability in order to get value out of it. The amount of value that you'll get is somewhat nebulous because it's like, well, maybe I have opt-in shock in my deck or whatever. And... The opponent I'm playing against, it, the shock doesn't really do anything. And then my sideboard cards are counter spells or whatever. And again, this is not Snapcaster. It, it doesn't do anything with those cards, right? Stretching back to older formats, I don't know. I would have to take a look at something like Historic or Pioneer where you know those, those formats have had, not had to look at what having a Snapcaster or something like that in it would do like I, I know that for example we've both been playing some Rakdos in historic and that deck just has a lot of one mana spells mm-hmm. so yeah historic definitely has the card pool to make this card fine but like standard what are you doing with this card in standard opt is the only thing that even remotely interests me and even that is just like meh like it's fine but the timing is so awkward and it forces you into such a small window that I'm not sure it's going to achieve what people think it does. And then so, the kick scenarios are rare. Like, they're probably game-winning. Depending on what the spell is, sure. Like, 
eight mana cast three shocks and get a two one is not very game breaking or even like opt three times or whatever. I'm not. Yeah, I was thinking like eliminate, but I guess even then you need your opponent's sizing to have lined up appropriately. And you just had like eliminate and this card and you waited for them to play the, the third thing. Like, It'll come on. Turn. <laughs> so I, I want to okay. cast my opt on turn one, right? right. I don't want to wait until turn three to like, ooh, look at me, draw an extra card. Like that is why... But it's one of the many reasons why Snapcaster is so good, right? Is because you get to play the spells and interact, and then you have the split card later. And with this card, you have to save the card and combo it with this card. Yeah. Having cast a lot of Dreadhorde Arcanist over the last week, this card seems mostly worse to me in almost every format. You could play both of them. And obviously different colors, so like different concerns, but... It makes your timing so awkward. It never does anything decent until turn three. And that assumes like your best case scenario. And you contrast that with like being able to go Thoughtseize, Arcanist, get another Thoughtseize. Maybe there's a window for this to succeed specifically with Thoughtseize. Like that's probably the card I'm most excited about this with because I think you can realistically Thoughtseize on turn three, double Thoughtseize and get a lot of value out of it. But you also want to Thoughtseize on turn one a lot. So I hope you drew two of them and Seagate Stormcaller. And I don't know. When, when I first saw this card, the first place I went, when I, which is where I often go when I see cards like this, is to Vintage. And I'm like, well, if I'm Ancestral Recalling or Time Walking, this certainly right. seems very good. And then I think you get blinded a little bit by, wow, the top scenarios are so good there. But putting together the right mix of ones and twos to really make this card something not just good, but special. Like, it's easy to see, okay, this is a fine card, and I need a wizard for my party, and I'm playing shock and opt anyway, so this makes sense in that context. You know, okay, the, I can start you know, to buy that. You know in Vintage you can play four Snapcaster, and they just don't even do that, right? Uh, yeah, that is that is true. And we can agree that this card is mostly just worse than mostly Snapcaster, worse. right? Yeah, in almost all scenarios, it, it seems to track a little bit worse. So what the hell? I guess if I want to keep making some arguments, you can copy kicked spells with this and they aren't more expensive by virtue of you paying their kicker. Okay. So if you have a ton of mana, you can sure. do that stuff. The other thing is cards that I guess like Cabal Therapy, where you can flash this back and get double therapy. That seems okay. But yeah. there's probably better ways to do that too. Like you could just... I don't know, play like Young Pyromancer and do those type of things. And people don't really do that anymore. Like there's been a lot of good Cabal Therapy setups over the course of Legacy. And they all have moments where they make sense and then they go away. So I don't know if that's really pushing me in the direction of buying into this card either. I think this card like floats somewhere in the middle. And I've seen way too much hyperbole on both sides about it, where it's like the next Snapcaster and completely unplayable. And it'll probably find some spots, like I said, with more specific goals in mind than just being like generically play my good spells twice. I don't think this card is unplayable, but I'm definitely not feeling the like, OMG, this is the, the new busted thing or whatever. I, I am with you there. Don't think this is quite busted. Maybe obviously, we'll see some play, though. Obviously, there's a lot of space in between. Um, but I, I think that this is more on the low end than anything else. Okay. The coolest thing about this card is, like, you can play it and then attack and have a combat trick. Okay. Big giant growths. Love it. Eight damage. That's my plan with this card. I'm casting giant growth twice. 
I don't know what, what the hell else are you going to do with it. Broke it. All right. Uh, on to black. Acquisitions expert. 1B, 1-2, creature, human rogue. When this enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals a number of cards from their hand equal to the number of creatures in your party. You choose one of those cards. That player discards that card. I don't know. This is this is like a better Ravenous Rats, right? Yeah. If we're playing Burglar Rats, we're playing this card. So, fine. I think there's probably a home for this. And do we have eight Burglar Rats now? Do we keep Burglar Rats? We we lost a Burglar Rat because one of them was in Ravnica. Uh, I'm not sure if it got reprinted in a corset or something. Okay. And, and then we have Fenlurker still. Was, no, Fenlurker was also in... The same corset as Risen Reef, right? So that's gone. Oh, you're right. I thought that was a, a Theros card for some reason, but you're right. You're correct. So this might be our only burglar rat now? Yeah. So wow, real shortage of rats. You can you can urian this. Uh if you have a big enough party, you actually get a pretty solid blackmail type of effect out of it. And mm-hmm. you know, if you get to like blink this or whatever, that's cool. Oh my god, cat. Cat, why? Cat loves <laughs> acquisitions expert. Just a huge Actually, fan. she. So I rearranged uh, my office, and they're they're trying to acclimate, right? Like there's, they think they think they just entered a portal into a new dimension, mm-hmm. even though the room is mostly the same. And uh, I moved their little sitting windowsill thing from one window to the other, so that I could, yeah, so I could pull the blinds down. They don't like change. They don't like no. it. So she was just like well, I got to get behind these blinds because that's where my windowsill sitting thing is. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, she was trying to acquire some window sittings. Would you Not say quite- she had a blood chief's thirst for the windowsill? Probably higher than that because... Wow. Dude, I, it's it's just, it's biology with, with these cats because there there is no decision making or anything it's just you get this urge and you 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 have to do it there's nothing else yeah that does seem even above a blood chief's thirst yeah so she's just like i want to get through these blinds and so she can get to the coveted prize behind the blinds maybe she hasn't gotten that far yet maybe she's just like i need to mess i need to mess up these blinds right and so she's gonna try and do it until i knock her away seven times and then she's like okay now, now I'm now I'm hungry now. or whatever. Like now, that's the thing that's hitting me. So now she's meowing at me. Anyway, Blood Chief's thirst B sorcery, uh, kicker two B destroy target creature or planeswalker with converted mana cost two or less. If the spell was kicked, instead destroy target creature or planeswalker. Planeswalker mana cost two or less. I hope not, but we'll see. Yeah, let's let's not go down that road. Again. This <laughs> didn't, didn't go so well the first time. This as disfigure already makes me pretty excited. Like this is disfigure that is main deckable, uh, not not being an instant. It's probably not that big of a deal, but there were definitely instances where you get to blow out their ember cleave and stuff like that. But yeah. I mean, this this scales so well into the late game too. This is just better than eliminate, I think. Interesting. Obviously, the context of the format has changed a bunch. I thought eliminate was like a pretty. Important tool in a world of Teferi and Narset and theoretically Oko. Uh, not what that card ended up doing in the long term and actually saw pretty little play after it was put into the format. So I guess we're just at a point where mana efficiency is, it has to be absolute. And if there's a cheapest way to do something, that's the tool we're going to use. I buy Blood Chief's Thirst as a good modal way of dealing with problems that'll have to be dealt with. Best removal spell in the format right now? 
probably. I think so. Probably. There's there's just like such a big delta between two and three mana where normally you're just like, okay, I have to kill their two drop to get some tempo back and survive. And then you let your bigger cards take care of like their more impactful things. Mm -hmm. And just having a, a, like you get to trade up on mana too, right? Like this is one mana to kill a two mana thing most of the time is what you're going to be using it on. And that's huge. And then granted, you have to pay for it on the back end whenever you want to kill something big. But at that point, I think it's fine. So yeah, hopefully you've reached a point where that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. So I I like this card a lot. I I think that, you know, obviously if they're just like a bunch of three mana baller creatures, which maybe there are, because there are definitely some good examples of that in this set, then I would say that this card is better than Eliminate. But realistically, you're probably going to play a mix of all your removal spells. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a good thing. Like we've talked a lot about having options and changing them based on what the format presents, and shifting between Blood Chief's Thirst and Eliminate could always be an interesting question going into a weekend. Yeah, coveted prize for B sorcery. The spell costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. Uh, search your library for a card, put it in your hand, then shuffle your library. If you have a full party, you may cast a spell with converted mana cost four or less from your hand without paying its mana cost. This card only matters to me if I have a full party. And I already talked about how unlikely I think that's going to be. And I don't think you're going to be able to plan around having a full party. So unless it is way easier to achieve full party than I think it is right now, I am not going to be playing Coveted Price. What if you have three? Then not it's, interested. Then it's Demonic Tutor, man. I did a lot of work to get to the point to get my Demonic Tutor. And there's, there's probably a world where Demonic Tutor... Is acceptable. I know that's wild to say because obviously Demonic Tutor is like one of the all-time great cards, but a lot of that is the context of the cards that surround it in the right. formats where it exists. And if you just like put Demonic Tutor into standard, I buy that it would be good. I don't think that it would necessarily break the game in half or anything. So Demonic Tutor is good when you're able to get things like Time Walk and Ancestral Recall that are undercosted, which means yes. that you get to make up for the fact that you spent two mana to effectively do nothing. Right. So, yeah, you're right. It, it's entirely context dependent on what is surrounding it, and uh, regrowth. Yes. <laughs> Re- regrowth <laughs> is much the same way. Where at first people are like, "You can't, you can't unrestrict regrowth and legacy; it'd be busted." And then it's like, "No, we restrict unrestrict it, and it does nothing." And then it's yeah. like, "You can't, you can't put regrowth in modern; it'd be busted." And it's like, "Okay, well now you have it in modern. What are you going to do with it?" Uh, Here it nothing. is. Nobody's seen it since. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, you put Grim Tutor in standard, definitely does nothing. Complete uh, blank. Literal Demonic Tutor, yeah, would maybe see some play, right? But unless, yeah, unless, if you can full party, this card is nice, right? But how often is that going to be the case? If it's something regularly achievable, I think there's like something to be said for this card. Like there is a diverse array of things you can put in your deck that will... I mean, maybe there's like a party control deck where you just have the perfect answer every time with four coveted prize in your deck. And that's interesting to me. The odds of that being good enough, though, seem very slim. Yeah. I mean, especially since this card exists and it costs five and all these other things where I think that you're going to have, you know, two or three, four is going to be tough. If you do have four and then you get to cast this card, cool. You probably won the game already. But realistically, you would rather just have a party member instead of this card to more realistically get to like three and four. Yeah, if there's one interesting like point of confluence, it's Coveted Prize and Winota, where like Coveted Prize is more 
Winota copies and also has the potential, like by setting up your early turns to have attackers for Winota, it's possible you're doing that with party. So maybe you could talk me into that, but I have a feeling that's just, you're painting out an absolute dream scenario that is almost never going to come to fruition. I put this card in my deck that is basically only good after I've attacked with Winota and hit off it. Well, so my thinking is that it's fine when you're only drawing the setup pieces for Renota. Uh, it's still really slow. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Overall, not impressed by this card. Demon's Disciple. 2B, 3-1, Human Cleric. When this enters the battlefield, each player sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. We just came off a huge sacrifice theme that is... Less relevant now with Cauldron Familiar being dead, but I don't know. Clerics have some play in this set, and it seems a little bit about sacrificing Fleshbag Marauder type of stuff, I think is a little overcosted for what we're doing now. I mean, Playcrafter was like an awesome, awesome, awesome card and saw zero play just because, you know, the, the stats aren't there and it's so inefficient. And I think that this is more of the same, but it'll, it'll probably see some play. Yeah, a little bit worse than Plague Crafter in some ways, but also a potentially relevant creature type. So also a human, you know, always keep track of your humans. That's that's a big deal. But sure. not doing much with this right away. Worth knowing it's in the format. Feed the Swarm. 1B Sorcery, destroy target creature or enchantment in opponent controls. You lose life equal to that permanence converted mana cost. I was originally going to leave this off the list because I didn't necessarily want to talk about older formats, but there have definitely been decks that I've built where, you know, Sultai in Pioneer, for example, is a mid-range deck that is going to have to kill a Leyline of the Void. And I was like, yeah, no one really plays Leyline in Pioneer, so it doesn't matter. But uh, you had an interesting point about Historic. Yeah, I've been playing a ton of... Rakdos Pyromancer, and I feel weird calling it that because it often feels like Young Pyromancer is the worst card in the deck. But I, I've seen plenty of lists that don't even play it. Yeah, and that seems very reasonable to me. But regardless, it is a mid-range-ish deck that plays really, really well against Grafdigger's Cage, which was by far the most popular form of Graveyard Hate in Historic because I've added a bunch of main deck and sideboard Bedevils which is a super flexible card that answers a ton of things that could go wrong for you in a game, you know, an unchecked planeswalker, whatever giant creature your opponent has, but also is hitting this hate card at the same time. And because you have that flexibility, it has honestly felt trivial to beat Grafdigger's Cage. I, I do not care when my opponent plays Grafdigger's Cage against me. On the other hand, you basically scoop if your opponent plays Rest in Peace or Leyland of the Void. Your deck does very little at that point. Yep. And I went as far as having like ridiculous sideboard plans that actually abandoned Loris, and I was trying to win with like Rankles and things like that. Because if you see Rest in Peace and Leyland of the Void, it is challenging to even participate in the game. Now, you don't have to do that kind of nonsense. You put a few copies of Feed the Swarm in your sideboard. You have outs to those enchantments, but you're not just playing like stupid enchantment removal spell or really weak, ineffectual, untargeted thing, like say Farika's Libation, you have this thing that doubles as a spot removal spell, which is a nice thing to have in your back pocket when you're playing a mid-range strategy and can also eliminate the card that just shuts you down on the spot. So this is a huge, huge pickup for those decks. Any type of graveyard focused thing that happens across a bunch of formats are going to be very happy to see Feed the Swarm exist. And I expect this card to see 
a lot of sideboard play in the older formats. Yeah, my plan was rotting Regisaur. I considered rotting Regisaur. I also considered Hazaret. And I think all of that stuff is like, okay, but all of it prices you off Luris. So if they don't have that card, you've just lost a huge portion of your strategy. But with London Mulligan, it just feels like they always have it. Like, you don't even yeah. play on that. It's it's really not that. Like, the, the Luris is fine, right? I don't know. I play a lot of games set up towards Luris, uh, Arcfiend's Vessel, and just knowing, like, that's how this game is going to end and being very comfortable spending all my resources to the point where, like, that's the only thing that matters is that I'm going to, on one turn, do all of those things, and that's going to be more than my opponent can deal with. All right, fair enough. Uh, Minecarver, B, Artifact Equipment, when this enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. Equip creature gets plus one, plus zero. Oh. It gets plus three, plus one instead, as long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. Equip to B. Cheap. Scales up nicely throughout the game. Get that free equip going. I don't know if this is part of the rogue strategy because I don't know all the rogue pieces yet. To me, it feels a little off. I think this is more aggressive than rogues are ultimately going to end up being. But if that's not true, this is probably a big reason why, because 3-1 is a huge buff. And what is our rogue from N21? I'm blanking on the name of it now. Thieves Guild Enforcer. Thank you. Thieves Guild Enforcer. That card very quickly pumps cards into your opponent's graveyard when you have a rogue-focused strategy. I know this because I have played black-red rogues in Historic alongside my friend Tiny Bones, Una's Blackguard, all those classic Historic-level cards that everyone is always playing all the time. But the one thing that impressed me was how quickly you were able to juice an opponent's graveyard and get your creatures to get a buff. And maybe Mind Carver is doing the same thing in the standard context when your deck is just full of rogues. Yeah, I I think that this might see fringe play, but mostly I wanted to highlight one of the equipments because I don't know, we, we talked last week about Nahiri and what that's going to look like. And uh, it seems like all of these equipments are when this ETBs attach it, which mm-hmm. what do you is, think of that? It, it's cool. I think it's fine. Like it, it should definitely not be on every equipment. I don't think. And it does. It feels like they kind of gave it a dry run with Embercleave, but it is a way for you to make a cheap equipment with an expensive-ish equip cost and have it not feel quite as bad. But mm-hmm. also, it's not like bone splitter type of stuff where the equip cost is just negligible and it feels like you have to kill every single thing every time. It's mostly just like, you know, if you kill the first thing, you get a little bit of breathing room, which is pretty cool. So I I like that mostly. Yeah, I think I like it too. Equipment needed a refresh. It needed some way to get introduced back into standard if it was going to be part of the equation. And I'm fine with trying this way out. Yeah. And Nighthawk Scavenger, 1BB. Or actually, hold on. Before I get to this, did you know that they have a Tiny Bones uh, wallpaper on Daily MTG? I did not know that. And just, throw, just throwing as, that out there. As much as I would love to Tiny Bones wallpaper, uh, my whole like vibe is very carefully set up with my my battle station i have led lights of certain colors on everything and that includes my wallpaper to kind of accentuate that setup so i i feel like i can't betray the color scheme of all these led lights that i have spent far too much money on Mm. just to show allegiance to tiny bones 
Well, uh, you can set it as like a you know phone background. Okay, or something. I like that. That'll okay. work. My wife's gonna be real pleased to find out she's been replaced as my background. <laughs> well, by tiny bones. Look, man, the the lock screen and your actual phone background, like that, those are different things. You know. Okay. Okay. I'll keep her on the lock screen. Tiny bones though gets the call. Nighthawk scavenger one BB creature vampire rogue one plus star slash three flying death touch lifelink. This power, this creature's power is equal to one plus the number of card types among cards in your opponent's graveyard. This this is like not super elegant, but is a very, very powerful card. So I think this is a very good example of how far you have to go if you intend to make just numbers matter on a creature that costs more than two mana. And Having said that, I think there's a possibility this card fails. Now, I, I guess fail. that yeah, I guess fail. that possibility accounts for like rogues missing. I, I don't know that just this card existing outside the rogues archetype is good enough on its face, which is blowing my mind to say, given the absurd combination of abilities and numbers you have put on this thing. But it's true. It's just not the way we've played the game of magic. And like you expect immediate return on your creatures. And if you don't get it, you get wrecked, you fall behind. And these life point swings aren't going to matter in a bunch of matchups if everything is mid-range. Now, when you add in a very relevant creature type with probably the cards I'm most excited to start building around, then I start to get on board. And I think this card will be very large in a bunch of situations and you'll get rogue synergies across all your creatures and those will all matter. And that's what has me saying this card will find some degree of success. But if you had shown me this five years ago, I'd be like, you're absolutely crazy. Vampire Nighthawk was already good enough. And now I have a moment where I'm like, well, this is just a creature and these are just numbers. And it's so hard for that to matter at three mana. To be clear, I think we crossed the threshold here, but not by that much. And if this missed, it wouldn't blow my mind. So compare this to Archon of Amiria, right? Where you're like, I'm pretty sure this could have a third power or whatever. And <laughs> the Nighthawk is just like, I'll take all the power. Thank yeah, you. potentially like a five power life linker for not a whole lot of work, you know, and that's that's pretty absurd for three mana. Uh, the the low power scenarios where your opponent is not really helping you just playing out like lands and creatures. Yeah, this thing is not going to be super big, but it does start with a power, which I think is there simply to eliminate the feel bad of having like this death touch zero power creature potentially, mm -hmm. but power level wise, I think they even could have gotten rid of the one plus star. It could have, it could have just been a star three and it would have been good enough. Yeah. You think it would have seen widespread play or rogue play at that costing? Uh, definitely rogue play because at this point I think that there are enough cards to make something work. But even as far as like, you know, maybe playing this in some sort of mid range deck, like if, if you have, would you any... play this in Sultai right now? If it was legal? Uh, so like old standard Sultai in current standard. Yep. I, I would want to try it at the very least. I mean, like uh, if aggro is not a presence, then you don't want this thing. Right. So right. it's, it's kind of weird to answer that, that question because now I think aggro does exist. So I think things still trend toward the middle. I, yes, yeah, I am yeah. probably coming off harder on this card than I intend to. Like, I do think it's a very good card. It's just, it should be a mind-blowingly good card given the numbers and the stats and the abilities that appear on it. And if, you, like I said, if you saw it a few years ago, it would be a mind-blowing card. I think it's going to hit in rogues and I think it 
could completely miss everywhere else, which is shocking to me. I don't know. They play a fabled passage. You kill a creature. Maybe one of their creatures is like an enchantment or something. And it's like, it's not that hard for this to get kind of out of control. And still just numbers, still just numbers and a body. No, no, I know, but it's like a a three mana mini Bane Slayer against aggro, which makes me very happy if that is what the games are about. Yeah, it, it depends a lot too. Like, what is aggro doing as far as interactive slash removal spells, right? Like, right. are there a bunch of scorching dragon fires in the deck? And this shaping that conversation seems okay to me. I, I would rather this shape a conversation about what does aggro look like than Uro shape the conversation about what aggro look like looks like. Because I think when Uro shapes the conversation, the answer is it mostly can't exist. Yeah. So, it, it much rather would have this be the limiting factor. Well, keep in mind that last format, uh, a lot of the removal spells were like Shock and Bone Crusher Giant because Shock was efficient and Bone Crusher was still a threat and people didn't really play removal. Mm-hmm. So then if the format is creature-centric enough that to the point where, you know, it forces people to play more interaction, that's a good thing. So, yes. yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to a point uh, no matter what, where, you know, even if this card is seeing play, like the aggro decks will have the tools to kill it. And then you get to play kind of like that little dance or whatever, but I don't know, just this either bricks them gets destroyed by Embercleave or allows you to race Embercleave. Hmm. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with all those scenarios. So, yeah, I, I think it's a net positive that this card exists right now. Yeah. Uh, Soul Shatter, 2B instant. Each opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker with the highest converted mana cost among creatures and planeswalkers they control. Got that dream trawler. Get out of here. Done with you. Yeah, aside from that, I don't really like this card. Okay, tell me why. I don't know. Three mana is a lot. For a thing where you don't necessarily get choice. And yeah, there are things like dream trawler, but... Uh, for the most part, you could have Murderous Rider and actually point and click and choose the thing that you get to destroy and or Blood Chief's Thirst, which is modal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there are certain scenarios where you'd want to kill a Dream Trawler, but unless that scenario is actually coming up, I don't see a reason to play this over the other options. So maybe just a little light sideboard play for this card, but not something that's shaping black going forward. Right. Okay, I like that assessment. Where are we at? I'm trying to look at my list. Uh, I, thwart the Grave. Yeah, Thwart the Grave. 4BB Sorcery. You're going to love this one, dude. This spell costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. Mm. Return target creature card and up to one target cleric, rogue, warrior, or wizard creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Are all the things that cost less due to party just not very good? They're all things I can't comment on right now. Okay. Because like I said, it just, there's too much context and the context is going to be continually changing. So I'm interested in these cards. This one in particular, it's possible you get a very big return on mana here and even card advantage. So like the best case scenario for this card is very good, uh, but it's just about how easy it is to do this stuff. And the six mana scenario, probably not as good and probably unplayable, but even there, you could probably put together some scenarios where if you're getting the right cleric, rogue, warrior, plus your creature, whatever the huge thing you're getting is, you're getting your six mana's worth. It's just that there's no real good huge creatures right now in the format, and there hasn't been for a while. That seems purposeful, and I would be surprised if that changes. You should think of this like 
your collecting company where it's almost always I get to choose. Hit something. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, no first you have to like draw creatures and get them in the graveyard, which might be a problem, but uh well, give me back Stitcher Supplier. That that puts it on easy mode. We'd be doing other things if we had Stitcher Supplier, I'm sure. That card is just absurd. I, I am somewhat confident that that's the next card to be banned in Historic. It just does so, so much for so many archetypes. Put that on my top 10 list. What's up? It was your number one card, if I remember correctly. Uh, it might have been. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Underred, Akum Hellhound, R01 Creature Elemental Dog. Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, this gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. Red finally has step links, and we don't have fetch lands, but R as mostly a 2-3 is above rate, and I'm pretty happy about it. Okay. I was underwhelmed by this just because I think it's going to even out with fail case scenarios to where it's just on par with the rest of the one drops that we've seen thus far from Red, which is to say not great, basically just tolerable, but... You, someone's got to fill that role. There's got to be some dog in the fight and maybe it's a Coombe Hellhound and maybe there's some incentives when you have extra lands in your deck because you have flip spells that really push you towards playing a Coombe Hellhound over whatever the other one drops are. I don't think this is a huge step forward, but I believe that it could see some play. The thing I like about this is that it actually brawls well enough versus things like Scorch Spitter and the things that we've had to deal with before, where if you are triggering landfall consistently, like even if you're just doing it once, a 2-3 is going to be able to actually get into combat and live, whereas a lot of the other red one drops we're not able to. Yeah, I think that would have been way more important if Cauldron Familiar stuck around. In the absence of that card, it matters a little bit less and the death of other like sacrifice-ish strategies, but your point's taken. If there's a bunch of small defensive stuff in the format, that'll matter too. Uh, also, if you are landfalling multiple times, that's pretty powerful with Embercleave. So that's another thing to keep in mind where just having a lot of power tends to be a good thing. Yeah, no, that's true. Ardent Electromancer, 2R, 3-2, creature, human, wizard. When this enters the battlefield, add R to your uh, mana pool for each creature in your party. I, I guess we don't say tier mana pool anymore, but you can say it if it makes you happy. I and, and have, for, for clarity. Fair enough. Uh, I have one word to say about this card, and that is boo. Right. Boo. No so, more free spells. No matter how many hoops you're going to put in front of me, just don't, just don't, just stop. Just don't do it. I, I don't think this card is busted or anything, but it's it still begs the question of why. If, very fair question. If anything is going to happen as a result of this card, it is not going to be good things. Therefore, what are we doing? So friend of the podcast, Kira Randall, tweeted something to the effect of this card in combination with the cycling blink thing and then the like stinger and life gain cycling creature, I believe are cleric and wizard, if I remember correctly. Okay. So you can actually like just generate a bunch of mana with every single time you cycle and blink ardent electromancer and just chain through your entire deck if everything cycles and you eventually hit a threshold that the ardent electromancer is generating enough mana. It's very silly, but it's just like the illustration of if this card does anything, what does it do? It's exactly that. Nothing good can come of this. Yes. 
Cleansing Wildfire. One R sorcery. Destroy target land. Its controller may search their library for a basic land card. Put it onto the battlefield tap, then shuffle their library. Draw a card. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Love you. this card. This is just a card that should exist. That's all I have to say about it. There's nothing particularly scary about it. There's nothing format defining. It's just a check to have around in a scenario where land gets out of control. And if we had gone through like the Field of the Dead era with this card existing... Who knows how the narrative is no. written. Dude, so that, that's another one of those instances where Field had a bunch of acceleration and they, you know, put a field into play on turn four or something. They're going to do a bunch of busted stuff on turn five. So you, on your turn three or turn four, have to spend two mana to like get rid of their one field and they just have a bunch of ways to find other copies. So I, I don't like that sort of card against Field. Look, there's a difference between actually being an efficient answer and some cards being so good that there is no efficient answer answer like there's actually no way to reasonably interact with them and field crosses that threshold of there's no reasonable way to interact with this no matter what we come up with there's always going to be like field can go through the top of that now does it slow down the proliferation of the deck a little bit does it change the way people feel about playing against the deck probably not i mean it's probably like a short-term blunt of its impact, but still there's no reason to not have this card exist is my point. You give people the opportunity to see if there's some agency they can take back with the situation as opposed to just immediately feeling completely helpless. Yeah. And the, the fail case of this is, I don't know, in the context of standard, at least it's like you get another landfall trigger or whatever. Cool. And I'm sure there are some things that you can do with that in older format, older formats as well. You know, you can kill your own flagstones or whatever. So John haters are going to be real happy to see this one. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this against Tron because the the plan of like assassins trophying them and fulminatoring them, it's like, okay, they probably don't get to assemble Tron, but eventually they're going to cast a worm coil engine and then you might just lose to that. So I don't know. It, it's, it's going to be weird to see how that actually plays out. The fact that this replaces itself definitely helps because before you'd like, you know, trophy fulminator them and just be completely out of resources. Yeah, just do that nothing. Not the case, so. Right. I, I think in the mid-range context, this becomes more realistic because you're progressing to your late game as opposed to just sitting there forever, which is what would happen in the Assassin's Trophy scenario. Yep. Speaking of doing nothing, Roiling Vortex, 1R enchantment. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, this deals one damage to them. Whenever a player casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast that spell, this deals five damage to that player, or your opponents can't gain life this turn. Tell them about it. Go off. Wow, it's a consistent threat and punishes them for playing free spells and stops them from gaining life, and it's all garbage. It does all of those things very badly. Yeah, real badly. So... Okay, you're wow, my opponent's playing a bunch of free spells. I better play this two mana enchantment that stops them. Like what? So think think about like Neo Brand or whatever. Is this is this the card that's gonna make Burn stand up to Neo Brand? No. No, it's not. What are we doing here? People that are playing a bunch of free spells are not gonna allow you to just like hang out until turn four. You know? Opponents can't gain life. Having to pay mana for that sucks. Yeah, I don't I I don't see any realistic way to benefit from that tied to a mana gate because what it's going to give you in terms of blunting their life gain is going to cost you in progression. It's pretend this card pretends 
that these games extend over much larger windows than they actually do. If this is meant to be a card which is able to answer these eternal problems, which it's worded as, right? Like free spells are an eternal problem. They're not necessarily a standard problem. So that's the vibe I get from this card is that it's supposed to reach back into the past. And if you're going to realistically do that, the burden is so high. And I just don't think it does enough in the standard context. Now, like, I guess you keep in mind that Fires of Invention is supposed to be here still. So is this a Fires hate card? I mean, okay. That's, maybe that's that's kind of cute, but yeah. uh, you know, I think they like play Teferi and take five and bounce it and play Cavalry well, and kill you. Or no, whatever. no Teferi at this point. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. There's there's other options for sure. I mean, Brazen Borrower, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which they can still play. So assuming they're like Karuga, I, I don't know. Look, one thing we're going to have to routinely remind ourselves is that any concept of addressing a format that these designs may have had is just completely out the window because we're not dealing with anything like the environment that was envisioned when these cards were created. We're so many cards off and not only are we so many cards off the companions, which possibly the most broken magic cards of all time don't function the way they previously did. So all of these things are just head and shoulders different than the world that these cards are being set up for. And I think given that there's going to be a lot of head scratchers like rolling vortex that don't really make sense in the context of standard. But if you start to reconstruct the format as it was intended, you can get back to a place where you go, Oh, now I see what we're supposed to be doing here. Both roiling vortex and confounding conundrum strike me as cards where they're like, yeah, we kind of have these issues in, in like standard and modern and stuff, but like, let's make it so these are somewhat appealing in commander. And I think that's how we ended up with these. Interesting. Is that is that necessarily a bad thing? Like these cards serving as many people as possible? Uh, no, if it actually did its job well in each scenario. Right. So like if these if these things actually solved like, you know, combo deck problems in modern or ramp problems in standard while also being great in commander, awesome. But that's that's not, you know, the the, the fact that I'm angry at these cards is that they are flops in standard and it maybe they're not supposed to do anything in standard, but at that point, why put the text on them when it's like, we have these problems in standard and instead of <laughs> giving us the actual answers, you're giving this, these, these things that don't actually do the job, you know, like why not just make them actually do the job? Right. Yeah. I, I am pretty confident now. This only occurred to me as we were doing this discussion it seems a lot like Roiling Vortex is supposed to be hitting fires. Even like the life gain being stopped by mana investment starts to make sense in the context of fires just popping off for like huge swaths of life on specific turns. You start to see how that lines up pretty well. And tending them when they play their first two free spells was going to be enough in a lot of scenarios. So that's where I'm now at on this card. But as far as what it does in internal formats, I mostly agree that this is just... It's, it's the same as any other two-mana enchantment blank that you could have been playing this entire time. Skyclave Geopede. 2R, 3-1, Creature Insect, Trample, Landfall, plus 2, plus 2 until end of turn. It's a big one. Uh, big, big crawly, gross insect. I think it's pretty incredible with Embercleave. Maybe the biggest, cheapest thing you could put an Embercleave on at this point that Rotting Regisaur is gone. I could see GOP doing some of that stuff. 
the base mode three one three mana trampler is that just good enough to play on its face? No. Again, I I think the the level is so so high for a three mana card that is just numbers to matter. It, it has the best chance of mattering in like these really aggressive contexts. So maybe GOP picks up some Ember Cleaves, but on the whole, I'm just much lower on these landfall cards this go around. I think they were heavily subsidized by the existence of fetch lands and without them, they're not going to have the same oomph and they didn't really get rewarded with buffs for those scenarios. This card would look real nice alongside Fable Passage if you go through that progression for sure. Like those are big chunks of damage, but uh, I don't know how often you're going to want that in your red landfall aggressive decks. Well, I mean, even the the Boros decks or like the Gruul deck that you played in B for Z and stuff like that, like those decks were aggro, but they still played like, you know, 25, 26 land because they right. wanted to hit landfall. Granted, both of those formats had fetch lands. Uh, so things are definitely going to be different. But now we have a few cards that can function as landfall triggers when you need them. But yeah, I mean, this just this just being like a three mana, potentially five power creature with Embercleave. It's like that's that's worthy of consideration. Yep. Uh, last, nope, not last red card. Second to last red card. Uh, one that has not been translated into English yet, so I don't actually know the card name, but it is uh, R for an instant and deals one damage to any target. If a permanent dealt damage this way would die this turn, exile it. And then the backside is a land that ETBs tapped and taps for red. So this is this is the perfect example of a modal DFC where you get the early removal spell against creature decks, but most of the time it's just going to be a land. And this is the type of stuff I love rather than putting like seven mana win conditions on the lands. Yeah, also some niche applications in terms of controlling like an Uro that you've teamed up to kill in some fashion and keeping it out of the graveyard. So I like that application as well. You could also see this as, well, timing's awkward, but potential ways to mitigate cats before they left the format. I'm sure that card was intended to be addressed in some ways by this. So this is a good application of this mode of card design. Like you said, it it doesn't frighten me the same way because it doesn't change the context of the game. It's just something that allows you to answer what could be problematic strategies or progress. It's not going to be what you're always building towards. And there are some costs still for having this card in your deck because neither side of this is ever going to be game defining or win you the game on its own. It's only small, small advantages that you could eke out over many turns and many decisions, not here's seven mana, here's my thing, can you beat it? Over and over and over. Yeah, I liked uh, Carnival Carnage a lot because it did kind of the same thing where it was an early removal spell against aggro but was a serviceable card against control too. Mm -hmm. And basically what ended up happening was the four mana Blightning was not very good against a a lot of different decks. So that card just kind of stunk. And this is a way to actually do it where... You know, you have the extra removal spell if you want it. You have the landfall trigger if you want it. If you're playing some sort of mid-range deck, but there are a lot of like GOPs in the format or whatever, then this yeah. card actually does stuff. So yeah. it, this this gives you extra agency during deck building in order to get small edges in a lot of different places. And that's what makes magic interesting. One of the many ways. Right. Uh, next up, Valakit's Awakening 2R instant. 
Put any number of cards from your hand on the bottom of your library, then draw that many plus one. And the backside is a land that ETBs tapped and taps for R. I I kind of I kind of get it. You know, it's a land where you know maybe you can filter out all of your other lands or whatever. But I feel like this is I don't know. Maybe you play like one of these or something. But if you're in the market for land plus spell, I'm sure that there are stronger things that you can do. See, to me, this is crossing the threshold again, where I think this has the capacity to just determine games and the effect can be too big, especially if you can find some way to get bad material into your hand. By bad material, I mean things like Squadron Hawks or you know anything that comes with some friends. There's the green-white legend that we're going to talk about in a little bit that goes and gets two basics. So anything that's really pumping your hand full of nonsense cards, this becomes a tremendous payoff. And normally, like setups like that, you'd be like, that's stupid. The level of investment is too high. You're not going to get the returns you're expecting most of the time. But now the cost becomes so low where you're just like, okay, well, if that's not coming together, I have this land and I do that thing and that's totally acceptable and I'm moving towards my late game. And those kind of setups, I think, are just going to be very consistent scenarios for certain types of decks. The Balakut Awakening application, I've seen a bunch, is people talking about it alongside Valakut. And I don't really get that. Like, there's got to be some conversion mechanism you're using and then taking advantage of Awakening, something like Life from the Loan comes to mind. Right. Yeah. But I'm just not convinced yet that this is something I want in games of magic. That's, again, where I fall on this card. I don't know. This one, to me, at least, it, it allows you to keep playing Magic. You know, like if you're super flooded and you want to cast this card, cool. But you still have to continue playing the game. Whereas the the Angel card strikes me as like... Just end the game. Yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're both kind of low on resources and here's this like super powerful effect. So I'm actually fine with this one. Yeah, I, I want to try some decks with the Junk Material Theory and see how they work out. Yeah, like yeah, the, I, I like that idea a lot. Where they exist, the the problem with that whole idea is the formats in which those ideas exist are very, very powerful. Right. Um, so, like, I'm I'm not going to realistically Squadron Hawk Valakut Awakening in Legacy. Like, that's well, I might, but I shouldn't. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've we've both done worse things in Legacy. So. Right. So, if, if there are ways to achieve that goal, then. I am very interested in this card in lower power formats. I can't think of any off the top of my head right now. We don't have like the the vampires that go get more vampires and uh, I was going to say around. <laughs> I was going to say you could uh, Legion Conquistador or whatever in Pioneer or something if you really wanted to. But. Yeah, that's that's probably a bridge too far. But if we ever see Squadron Hawk again, I'm immediately pairing it up with Valakut Awakening. Yeah, uh, it, the reason why I was pretty low on it was because I didn't see a lot of ways to actually generate those, you know, extra bad resources. Yep. But uh, there, and I lied. There's actually one more red card that I forgot to add to the list because again, it hasn't been translated to English yet. This is the two R enchantment uh, landfall. Uh, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card as long as it remains exiled. And at the beginning of your end step, if there are cards exiled with this put them into their owner's graveyard, then this deals that much damage to each opponent. This is a, a way better like outpost siege or 
four mana Chandra or theater of horrors. Like this card's real nice. I thought it was real interesting how much damage this can potentially generate in ramp scenarios. Like if you're just putting a bunch of lands onto the battlefield, this could very possibly kill your opponent, especially considering like, again, I'm talking old school ramp, not Uro ramp, right. where you're playing a bunch of ramp spells, trying to get to a point where you have this huge threat that you're going to then use to take over the game. I don't know what that type of deck would look like right now. That's really hard for me to envision. But if that comes to fruition, then I think the payoffs are real good for this card. And you'll have some very, very explosive landfall-based turns where you just kind of go off. Yeah. Uh, this this card is this card is real nice. I like this card a lot. I think this this will see a lot of sideboard play. Maybe not main deck play, because this isn't necessarily the type of thing that's good against everyone. But Red has played these sort of effects in their sideboard a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On green. And this is it. This is this is the problem card, I think. Balaged Recovery, 2G Sorcery, return target card from your graveyard to your hand, and the backside is a land that ETBs tapped and taps for green. Remember the question I posed you about the Vampire Nighthawk clone of would you play this in Sultai? Yeah. Let me ask you the, that question about this card. Four. Play four, four. of this card. Slam dunk. Absolutely. I, I think this card is messed up. But like it's, it's not up. it's not a basic forest, so it wouldn't make double mana off Nissa, Brian. We'll be fine. We'll get over that as we play our eighth Nissa of the game yeah. and bury you under a sea of card advantage. These effects are routinely underrated, I think. Like we saw it with Den Protector, where people just didn't really pick up on just how powerful that card was going to be. Well, hold on, because we did poo-poo regrowth earlier in the cast. Okay, but... We we poo-pooed just regrowth and just regrowth only does one thing and you have to have gotten to a late game scenario to safely do that thing. Like you need to have cast something, put it in your graveyard, now have the mana where you can reinvest two mana and get back to that place. Balagad Recovery is a stupid land that you could put onto the battlefield and now you just made your land drop. And maybe that's not important most games because you curved out perfectly and you're Uro in and everything's fine. But that game you would have lost because you weren't going to draw your third land. You're in now for free. All you had to do is play this card that you will find a use for in the late game. And if you don't have a use for it at any point in time, if you're just trying to build like Sultai decks did and routinely make land drops and then play a Hydroid Crisis at some point, you're very, very happy to see this card at every single point of the game. Tap lands be damned. You'll get over it. And if there is a card which emphasizes the all games end in the same fashion, it's Balaged Recovery. Because you're just setting up the same scenarios over and over and you're leaning on these overpowered cards. Now, granted, the best ones are leaving. Like the most, the, the thing I would be most excited to do with this is combine it with Nissa and Hydroid Crisis. I think that deck right. writes itself. It's absolutely incredible. And I don't have my Balaged Recovery deck mapped out as of yet. But I will. And this is a mid-range tool that's going to make a big, big difference for these strategies and probably what they're built around for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's funny because Nissa in particular would have just made the mana cost on this like fairly trivial. Mm -hmm. But uh, like I said, I wrote my article on Omnath this week. I had a lot of Balaged recoveries in my deck and I it just it made it seem like, all right, I'm going to build my deck around finding this threat and trying to make it do its thing. 
and that thing involves landfall. So now I have a, a lot of yeah. reasons to play a bunch of lands because obviously I'm playing Uro 2. And then if I'm like kind of flooded, I could just choose to not play this and instead like regrow one of my biggest threats and yeah, get your Omnath back. It sounds yeah, pretty good. Uh, this, this is the type of card that I despise having on the land. It, sh- it, it shouldn't be something that dramatically alters your deck and your game plan and the things that you're vulnerable to. And it should not be a thing that is just a generically good card or like, you know, I mean, like three mana, three mana regrowth is not a good card, but it turns into a good card when the game has gone long and you're super flooded. Yeah. So it, it scales, it scales on both. Like it's, it's an early game card and a late game card. And we've talked so much about right. the value of scaling and that's, that's Uro. Like it's, it's the same card as Uro where early on, it does the thing you need to do in the early phase of the game. It, ex, it gets you to where you're making your land drops late in the game. It's the best card in your deck, the best threat in your deck, a source of card advantage. And Balagid Recovery will get to do any of those things. Plus, I have to be careful how I say this because it, now it's starting to sound like I'm trying to say this card is better than Uro. That's not actually what I'm saying. But the flexibility that it offers you is way broader than Uro's. Yes, it's not better. It's just potentially more frustrating. It can be because if the best card against you is just... Wrath of God. Okay, I'll go get my Wrath of God again. I've cast it for the seventh time this game against your creature deck. And yeah. what, are you, what are you supposed to do in that scenario? I was I was thinking about this in terms of uh, sideboard cards and certainly like having an extra removal spell or sweeper or uh, you know negate against control deck or when I was playing uh, Wilderness Reclamation, for example, it's like, oh, maybe uh, they've dealt with all of my expansion explosions or whatever. Mm. It's It's just stuff like that. Obviously, we're not in those exact scenarios, but what what I ran into with the Omnath decks too is like, oh, you want to like you know scale up and up. Is there a big payoff card? And like, yeah, kind of. There's Ugin, but you also don't necessarily need a big payoff card when your big payoff cards are just your lands. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's circling back to the blue enchantment. It's like, oh no, you're punishing my landfall thing by in the late game making me return this land that then becomes a regrowth. <laughs> yeah, wow. I didn't even think of that. That's kind of backbreaking. Garbage. Garbage all the way down. Uh yeah. This this one's gonna do some stuff. It's gonna be an important card. And now all of these decks, all of these theoretical mid-range decks we're talking about, get to cheat to what? 30 lands? maybe 32 like it you can go real far down this road and that means you get to play every single game yeah thinking back on my article it's it's possible that i didn't go hard enough on stuff like this i was like oh, i'll play 29 land with three of these or whatever and you know maybe it's just supposed to be 32 and four or something maybe maybe even heavier than that i don't know yeah well we still have more of these to be revealed so we'll we'll see how they go but it's not going to shock me if a deck shows up with 40 virtual lands. Like, I, I get it. <laughs> I understand what we're trying to accomplish there. Yeah. Uh, next green card, a little bit more on the fair end. Uh, 1G instant, not translated to English. We'll just, we'll call this Cedric's Charm. How about that? Okay. Yeah, that fits. 1G instant, kicker 2G. Choose one, or if this is kicked, choose any number instead. First option is put two plus one plus one counters on target creature. The second is target player gains X life where X is the greatest power among creatures the player controls. And the final one is target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. 
love me a good charm. Love it when all the modes are not great, but you can combine them into something special and the versatility they offer just lets you play your game, especially for like a card that is very clearly geared around just good old fashioned magic, playing some dumb creatures, getting in there and attacking this, this card is just cool. I, I like it. I like how all the modes come together really nicely into making a good format of spell. Like any one of these on its face is not all that impressive, but you slap all these abilities together and now you've made a huge life swing and gotten a two for one and gotten in a bunch of damage and all those things are, that's what these mopey green decks are built around. That's how Cedric makes his money. <laughs> and I'm sure he will continue to do so with this card. It is, it is five mana total. A five mana total. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah, this, this card is solid. The, the thing that I dislike is that it's pseudo dead against creature light mid ranger control. I mean, you get to plus two, plus two, your thing permanently, but that's still counter your heartless act could be good. Okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair, I suppose. Um, we'll have to see how much heartless act there actually is, but I mean, it'll come up. I'm sure of it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. But yeah. The, the other modes are all quite good and I don't know, it's relatively cheap, instant speed. Like, this card's just nice. I'm with you. Next up, we have Lotus Cobra uh, reprint. Cobra was around with Fetchland, so probably not as busted, but this is uh, 1G, 2-1, Creature Snake, Landfall, add one mana of any color, and this this made a lot of my Omnath decks, too. I believe that. This card... First, this promo, Lotus Cobra. Wow. That is a beautiful magic card, and I have a feeling I'm going to end up with four of those in foil because I just can't look away from it. Uh, so that's my first purchase from the set. My second takeaway is that this is a good friend of Eros, for sure. I think it plays very nicely with that card and will lead to very explosive starts. I am very interested in this card with Winota. I think the addition of a card that can ramp you to Winota on three, but doesn't tap to do so could actually be really meaningful for that archetype. And now getting, getting two Winota triggers on turn three should not be beatable for most decks. And I think we have all the right flip lands to routinely be casting these cards on time. So that might be actually the first place I start with Lotus Cobra, but all of the Uro Omnath stuff this card's just good. It's not going to break in half without fetch lands, but it's going to matter. You still have the the fabled passage stuff. So every right. once in a while, you're going to be able to like, you know, get to six mana on turn four or whatever, and it's going to feel real nice. And then uh, situations with like double Lotus Cobra and stuff like that. So yeah, if you didn't play against this card the first time it was in standard, it competed with Jason Stoneforge Mystic. Like there was very reasonable decks that kept pace with Callblade. I mean, they were worse than Callblade, but they were close. They they were very, very reasonable Titan-based decks, Frost Titan, Inferno Titan. And this, this card is just capable of doing way more than it looks like. I think people will be shocked if they haven't played against Lotus Cobra before because it's missed the Eternal formats. It just hasn't hit there for whatever reason. And I it, think it's, it's because- seen, It's seen some modern play a little bit. I feel like you're only saying that because you might be the only person I've ever seen with a Lotus Cobra in play in modern. Because <laughs> I'm thinking back to you playing like a Kiki Jiki deck with Lotus Cobra in it. Well, I, okay. So I, if I were playing a Kiki Jiki deck, I definitely did not build that. Okay. That was that was me just Fair like enough. taking someone else's deck. But I've I've played this in like uh, Felidar decks, and there have been 
the Windburst Kites, Knight of the Reliquary, Emrakul decks that have played this and stuff. So like not, yeah. you know, not tier one stuff, but. Right. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, occasionally floating around the edges of the format, but never quite finding a home. It should be an important standard card, though. We've lost a lot of our two mana accelerants as well. Yeah. Uh, things like Paradise Druid are gone, and uh, even Elemental has, has left the format at this point. So we're going to need some fill in there. As as far as the the promo artwork is concerned, I was looking at that person's Twitter, and their stuff is all pretty much fire. Nice. I'll, I will definitely check that out. Okay. Uh, Roiling Regrowth, 2G Instant, Sacrifice a Land. Search your library for up to two basic land cards. Put them on the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. This is uh, Harrow, but you don't have to sack a land as an additional cost. So even if it gets countered or whatever, you're not uh, in a super feel-bad spot. But it's worse than Harrow because it puts them on the battlefield tapped. That said, I'm actually pretty happy about this for potentially landfall triggers. But that's assuming we don't get anything else that helps. Yeah, this is the best landfall payoff so far, uh, but I think we're all hoping for something a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, Tajuru Paragon, 1G, 3-2, Creature Elf. This is also a Cleric, Rogue, Warrior, and Wizard. Kicker 3, when this enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, reveal the top six cards of your library. You may put Nope, it- hate it. Already hate it. What? Get gone. No, this is a... What? Sounds like Collected Company. I'm going oh. to miss every time. Don't want to cast this card. You may put a card that shares a creature type with it from among them into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library. Random order. Uh, body's not good. Kicker is expensive. Brian's going to whiff anyway. The The thing that I, I should note is that you need four objects to have a full party. This is. Just- did you have the moment where you thought this was broken? No. No, 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 I was like, I, I did. I was like, there's no. I hadn't read the party rules. <laughs> I was like, there's no way it works like this, right? Like, this is not just you know Black Lotus or whatever. Uh, so yeah, you this this Black Lotus. This this is a wild card, right? It fills in uh, for whatever party member you're missing, and then I guess if you have a bunch of mana, you want to kick this thing, cool. But the, the body is just not good. The kicker is expensive. I feel like decks are going to need to play this, but they're not going to be happy about it. This in this is the card that really enforces my idea that you can't work for these payoffs. You have to just let yourself take them by the way your deck naturally has to be built. And if you have to go down the route of playing something like Tajuru Paragon to fill out your party, I think that's going to go really poorly for you. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with that. I feel like this is just a like cool limited card and all the... Mana reduction cards are mostly just cool limited cards and maybe you can build full party in constructed but probably not right there with you multicolored linvala shield of seagate one w three three legendary creature angel wizard flying at the beginning of combat on your turn if you have a full party choose target non-land permanent and opponent controls until your next turn it can't attack or block and its activated abilities can't be activated Sacrifice this, choose Hexproof or Indestructible. Creatures you control gain that ability until end of turn. So this is uh, Dauntless Escort. Yeah, I'm mostly going to treat it as if the first line of party text doesn't exist. And then I still think it's an acceptable card. Yeah. And you can play it pretty happily. So I'm on board with this one. But this contributes to the idea, right? Like if there's a beatdown-ish white-blue flash deck of some sort that can just play Linvala and be happy about it. And then it's two drop happens to be... 
you know, a rogue and it's one drop happens to be uh, Archpriest of Iona, then the deck starts to come together and I go, okay, the party stuff is just happening on its own. I'm satisfied with it. I don't need to work for it. I want to play these cards anyway. Yep. That's how I see this working. Otherwise, it's it's just not going to hit. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Zareth Sand, the trickster, 3UB44, legendary creature, merfolk rogue. I am upset that Paulo shotgunned this to write about for Star City. Uh, this has flash, and you can pay 2UB and return an unblocked attacking rogue creature you control to its owner's hand. Put this from your hand onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. Ninjutsu. Rogue Jitsu. Nice. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, you may put target permanent card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. So this is basically the perfect payoff card for rogues because they're already doing the mill your opponent thing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this is uh, putting something sweet in your your opponent's graveyard, and then you get to ninjutsu ink eyes again, and that was always fun. So I am in for this. Yeah, you also get like rebuys on any ETB triggers, which we know rogues will be taking some advantage of. So I, I am excited to put together this deck. I hope it's good enough, and the pieces I've seen thus far make me feel like it's good enough. So, and we're still early on in, in the preview season. There's a lot more coming, assumingly more rogues. So I am hyped about this archetype and it should be fun to play with and against. Yeah, you have you have the two one drops, you have two reasonable three drops with Borrower and Nighthawk. You have this as a big payoff and then you have Drown in the Lock and then you can kind of sprinkle in whatever else you want. So I'm, yep. I'm in for it. It seems like there are enough cards to actually make it good. Yeah, that's even with even out having done a Scryfall search yet to see what other rogues are floating around out there that I'm not particularly aware of. And I'm sure there's some. So uh I did, and okay. it Anything was good? it was not particularly great for okay. for just Amir. Like there's uh acquisitions expert or whatever, the the Ravenous Rats, if you want to ninjutsu that thing. Yeah, that seems reasonable. But yeah, I mostly wanted to play it uh kind of like a, a flash style deck, so that's that's good enough for me. Nice. Next up, we have Zagris, Thief of Heartbeats, 4BR, 4-4, Legendary Creature Vampire Rogue. This spell costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. Flying Death Touch Haste, other creatures you control have Death Touch. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a Planeswalker, destroy that Planeswalker. If you can get this to like a 4-mana 4-4 Haste, I'm pretty happy about that. I think that that's probably the best case scenario. Given the fail state of this card, that best case scenario is not enough to entice me to playing it. That could change a lot based on context, though, because I could see a scenario where just mitigating planeswalkers is important. And if there's very wide battlefields of planeswalkers, or if there's a particularly key one like, say, Ugin, that you really benefit from having some hasty way to interact with, uh, then maybe Zagros can find a home. I I don't see this as like a build around or anything super important to the format, but I will keep my eye on it. It is a rogue. So I guess like we can start to think about, is there a Grixis or just a uh, Rakdos version of rogues? And since I like most of the cards contained thus far in the archetype, I'm going to certainly go down those paths as well. 
but this card doesn't have me over the moon or anything. I'll keep an eye on it, but I'm not expecting big things. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, if if four mana, four, four haste, flying haste existed, that would still not really see play. So it's like you have to get this down to three mana, which seems difficult, or have the other text actually matter and all of your things having death touch, you know, maybe that does something. Uh, but as far as like being a revenge killer for Ugin, that seems difficult after Ugin has wiped your board and now this thing costs six again. Costs six again, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there are other party payoffs that are worth working towards. And this this is not really one of them as far as like trying to go super hard on it. And I guess it's kind of cool though that Ugin's starting loyalty six or five? Uh, six, right? Six. Okay. I was thinking maybe this just floats over the top of every possible mode of Ugin, but I guess that is not the case. Seven. Oh, yeah. So yeah I, I, I want, it was I want to blown say, up with everything else. I wanted to say six or seven, but then I was like, seven is just so high. It is really high. And turns out it is able to account for Zagros. So there go those dreams of no, having but, a Ugin proof threat. So yes, it, it still dies to Ugin, but it does mean that they have to expend extra loyalty to kill it, which can matter in scenarios where it's like, you know, easier, maybe you have like the ping card, the, the ping mm. land split card, or you have like a, a one power haster or something, you know, so forcing them to use extra loyalty matters or yeah, maybe they have to like kill their own stuff at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, still, still not a, a great thing, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't like eliminate it, right? Cause it costs so damn much. Uh, that is true. I'll give you that one. <laughs> Uh, next up, another card, not yet in English. Uh, this is Yasharn, some sort of legendary creature elemental bore. It is 2G dub for a 4-4. When this enters the battlefield, search your library for a basic forest and basic plains. Reveal them, put them into your hand, then shuffle your library. Players can't pay life or sacrifice non-land permanents to cast spells or activate abilities. Again, I think, yeah, this was maybe like a cauldron familiar mm -hmm. type of thing. And that's not really where we are. But four mana, four, four that gets you two lands to make like further landfall triggers is close. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah, but. I think I think it's going to come up a little short and maybe it had a chance if it was actually getting some splash damage towards cauldron familiar. But uh, I, I think it's just just a bit short. This is a way to generate some of that trash material in your hand that we talked about that is true uh, all right so but, now now we have uh boar valakut deck yeah it feels like we need some more pieces from that one yes. so uh, i'll keep my eye on it but i i think this card is mostly going to miss by virtue of cauldron familiar already hitting the bench yeah Cleric of Life's Bond, dub B22 creature vampire cleric. Whenever another cleric enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. Whenever you gain life for the first time each turn, put a plus one plus one counter on this. There's cool little vampire cleric synergies all over the place. Uh, we're going to talk about one more as well. And there's Vito existing in M21. So I don't know what we're supposed to do with clerics yet. They don't quite have the same identity that rogues have already taken on, but still a lot of room in this set. And probably this is an important part of the puzzle if clerics are going to matter. Yeah, likely. I mean, this is, I don't know, kind of weird. A Johnny's pride mate plus soul warden 
So it's like kind of helping itself do the thing, but just at a slower rate. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like it for for two mana, that's that's not bad. If this were in the realm of like three mana or whatever, I would just say that it doesn't do enough. But it's possible that this ends up being like a two mana five five, and that actually becomes relevant. But we'll see. Yeah. And, you know, I think those life gain triggers in combination with things like Veto and there's some life linkers uh, under the Cleric banner as well. All those things, you want them to come together to form a package which is more than the sum of its parts. And you see the potential. That type of magic mostly hasn't worked because individual cards have been so powerful. Yep. But you want it to. You want it to. I'm rooting for the Clerics. That's what I'll say. Yeah, me too. Uh, Cleric Lord, we have Aura, Skyclave, Herophant, 2 dub B for a 3-3, three, three, Legendary Creature, Core Cleric, Lifelink. Whenever this or another Cleric you control dies, return target Cleric card with lesser converted mana cost from your graveyard to the battlefield. So we, we've seen Lords like this that are supposed to like you know protect your investment or whatever. This is This is one of the better versions of that that I've seen. I agree. I again, still no clear identity. This is just like a good value card that happens to be a cleric and rewards you for playing in a bunch of clerics. And you know the lifelinks there. So I'm gonna check the type on Vito real quick. I think he's a vampire cleric, but I want to be sure. I did not do a search for clerics yet. Only rogues. Vito Thorn of the Dusk Rose is a legendary creature vampire cleric. If you're not familiar with Vito and haven't played it, whenever you gain life, target opponent loses that much life. And then for black, black three creatures you control gain lifelink until end of turn. So obviously Vito amps up the damage that this card is capable of doing. It is a way to get your Vito back if that's going to be a key part of your strategy. So you see what's going on here. You see all the pieces starting to come together. There's got to be some more oomph to the engine though. And a little bit of redundancy in all these ideals if this is going to quite get there. Yep. Uh, next card is Kaza, Royal Chaser. You are one, two. Legendary creature, human wizard, flying haste, tap the next instant or sorcery spell you cast this turn costs X less to cast where X is the number of wizards you control as this ability resolves. What are we casting with this, Brian? Lofty freaking denial all day. One matter lofty denials on turn three, you're playing a threat and you get to keep up your lofty denial. Love it. All right. That's gas. What else you got for me? That's it. That's all I have thus far. But it plays well with both parts of that card. And you wizards definitely don't have an identity. For all the complaints about clerics not <laughs> being completely clear, I have no idea what wizards are supposed to do yet. So Spells, I'm just going to question yeah, mark. I'm just sitting this one out until we have more cards. But that synergy, Lofty Denial plus plus Kaza, that's good. That's good enough for standard, hundred percent. So if there's more pieces around that, we can start thinking about putting those cards together. All right. Nissa of Shadowed Bows, 2BG, 4 starting loyalty, legendary planeswalker Nissa. Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a loyalty counter on this. Interesting. Uh, plus one, untapped target land you control. You may have it become a 3-3 elemental creature with haste and menace until end of turn. It's still a land. Minus five, you may put a creature card with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of lands you control onto the battlefield from your hand or graveyard with two plus one plus one counters on it. Uh, I feel like you can make this Nissa have a lot of loyalty. Something very important we have to address before we get to that question. So, Shadowed Bows, 
Boss or shattered. I, I mean, I, I think it's like boss, like deck the halls with balls of holly, right? That's like a plant thing. I don't know, man. I, All I know is I got wrecked for my pronunciation of some word last week, so I couldn't let you get by with all right, uh, Nissa I'm, of Shadow am, Bows. Okay. I am going to blame it on uh, Midwest dialect. Okay, sure. I make lots of excuses. You may as well be able to whip up an excuse whenever you want for poor pronunciation. Yeah, I actually I actually didn't know when, when I was reading it. So I was just like, yeah, I, I hope I get this right, but I doubt it. It's, I will say I am glad you are the person who reads the card titles and not me because they would be way worse than that misstep if you put me in charge of this uh, endeavor. Okay. So so what is it? Boz? I think so, but you really shouldn't be relying on me to properly pronounce words. Don't okay. worry. Someone will hit you on Twitter and tell you uh, how wrong you were. They, they love doing Before that. Before they do, know that I'm not interested. Okay, not <laughs> I've tried that. I've tried that stance. It really doesn't get you very far. But still, uh, this is a cool magic card that I am happy to cast, and I think it's quite powerful, quite mid-rangey, and a little fairish. I think I want to say. I mean, it's not going to feel too fair when like a giant rankles beating you down or a questing beast or something like that. Yeah. But it is very much just like creatures and attacking and that's basically the only mode it, it doesn't have a game winning ultimate on its face it's just like i'm gonna beat you down and i'm gonna have redundant threats from my graveyard and uh it seems like a cool route for golgari based decks to occupy it's in it's, a post sultai world it's not really like a beatdown thing though because you're just getting the the one land per turn right yeah. You're like attacking but, them for three the re- every turn and putting loyalty on this. And then you're like, ah, oh, big creature out of the graveyard. I mean, what what is the, the big creature going to be? What is the thing that we're recurring? That is a good question. I think you want something that is getting to the graveyard of its own accord and not just looking for like the best thing to bring back because the best things are like the format of legendary creatures in Golgari. And then like Elder Gargaroth is another one you can say is one of your best payoffs, but it's it's that can't be the essence of this deck unless this card is just good enough where you just play like pile of removal spells discard big threats and it looks like golgari from three years ago and i'm going to give you a little spoiler alert that's not going to be good enough in present magic correct this card needs to take on some identity before i'm real concerned about it but i i like what it's trying to do i just don't know how you make this into something that is as powerful as other stuff particularly the next card we're about to talk about i wish i wish the plus one was just like make a plant you want a straight oh one plant i don't like just something something that sticks around and like protects nissa or like maybe if the land stuck around until your opponent's next turn or something or your opponent's end of turn i mean i don't know Uh, most most like bang for buck assuming that like maybe our lands are going to be dying or we're not going to get to like 10 lands Minus five getting like the the new Nighthawk is probably the most impressive thing you can do. Okay. okay. Off the top of my head, at least. I'm sure there's there's probably like a better four or five mana option, but at least that yeah. one, at least that one you're gonna like cast, probably it'll get killed or you'll trade it trade away off. or something, and you don't have to like work to get it into your graveyard. Okay, I buy that. I think the the like 
absolute dream scenario is something like you play this on turn five with a land drop left, fabled passage, and then pop off your yeah. creature immediately. Yep. Like that's not going to come up all that often though, I think. So if if that's the best mode, and even doing that, I'm still like, okay, but I, that means I had to have setup in my earlier turn. So I, feels like a powerful card, but feels like a mode of magic that we can't successfully play right now. In part because Golgari is not one of the uh, color combinations getting any form of identity in this set, right? Like we don't have a Golgari dual land. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Yeah, there's yeah. blue, yeah. black, and white, black. Mm-hmm. And and that fits with the cards that we're seeing in the set. Like you feel p- powerful options in those other, you know, party adjacent setups. But I, I haven't felt anything powerful from Golgari. I think this is a card that's going to have more of a chance of succeeding as the format gets wider. Why why is uh, Nissa Golgari now? That is not my field. I also uh, you're okay. supposed to answer those questions. Okay, let me, me. <laughs> let me also tell people I'm not super interested in you like tweeting at me telling me <laughs> about that I, if I want to figure it out, I would Google it. You know, I would I would do the That's research true. I would find out on my own. You don't need to tell me. At Jerry T at Twitter.com. That's also that's just a, not a, accurate. That's a three for the E. Oh, okay. G three R R Y T Twitter. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip to the last card. Crawling Barons, land, taps for colorless. You can pay four to put two plus one plus one counters on this, then you may have it become a zero zero elemental. It's still a land. Cool. This is something to do with uh all the mana that you have now. Sweet. Uh but nice. I wanted to do that so we don't just end on that quick hit. Uh, we can end by talking about Omnath, Locus of Creation. Uh, this is new Nephilim, four different colors of mana. RGW, no black. Uh, for a 4-4, legendary creature elemental. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card. Landfall, uh, gain four life if it's the first time. This ability is resolved this turn. If it's the second time, add RGW to your mana pool. If it's the third time, this deals four damage to each opponent and each Planeswalker you don't control. Oh, okay. So I actually read this wrong. I thought it was each creature in Planeswalker. My article might look awkward. <laughs> that is uh, that is a very dramatic change. I, I was actually disappointed that it didn't like dome the opponent. So yeah, whatever. This is still very good. Well, I am going to give you a moment to collect your thoughts because I know you have been very excited about this card and just finding out it does something completely different has to slow you down for a second. So I'm going to give you a little story instead. And I haven't told you the story yet. We talked about this card quite a bit Hit me, uh, because we were both excited about it. And I think this is a really interesting confluence of events. So people who have been listening know I have been teaching my wife magic and her experience with magic is solely in the pioneer format. She really hasn't seen too many standard cards and she has never experienced a set release before. So she's never like had the opportunity to look at new magic cards and she's still not, you know, I don't want her to sound like she's a fully entrenched player. She's pretty just on the fringes, but I can show her magic cards now and let her look at them and get reactions from her, which is awesome. Like that's just not something we've been able to do at any point in the, oh my God, 13 years we've been together now. And for the first time with this set, I've been able to show her, look at this new magic card. And I showed her Omnath, Locus of Creation. She stops, she reads the card, and then she looks at me and she goes, that's going to have to be banned. 
which was just <laughs> fucking amazing for me. Like I, I was so over the moon that that was her reaction because I, I also, well, I don't think it's going to have to be banned. I, I think this might be the best card in the set. And I think it's like jaw droppingly good, but for her reaction to not only like go down the path of bans immediately, because she hears me complain about banning all the time. So she knows that's become a very large portion of magic at this point. But I, I was just proud of her for nailing that this is a very, very powerful card with minimal exposure to magic. And I, I am convinced that this card is being slept on right now. This could very well take over the focal point of the format from Uro. Again, it's not, I'm not saying it's better than Uro. I'm just saying that as opposed to this being the default mode of playing a fairish strategy, it could be about Omnath instead. And granted, it's going to be played with Uro in almost every single instance. Right. That's what's going to happen when you share those colors. Uh, but this is going to be the card you're more upset to see your opponent play than Uro. I promise you. So this plus Fable Passage, this plus Uro, and then there are some other things where I was like, well, maybe we should just be playing a couple copies of Evolving Wilds too, just to make, you know, step two and step three happen a little bit more often. And then uh, my my article was completed before the uh, fake hero got previewed. And I, granted, I also thought that it hit creatures despite reading it like actual 15 times to make sure that I knew what it did. It's it's so weird. You like you read it out loud once, right? And it just completely changes everything. Yeah, it does. I've certainly done that many times. But let me tell you something. There is a world where this card is better just doming opponents than hitting opposing like creatures, especially because if the format does become about Omnath, you would just be trading Omnaths back and forth. And now it might just be about like blow your opponent up out of nowhere and dome them repeatedly as your mana accelerates completely out of control and your life total gets to a safe point. And there's just so much text on this card and the benefits of doing the basic thing of magic, just playing lands. They scale so quickly with Omnath. Yeah. Agreed. So the, the only thing that I can think of is like, well, I built specifically one of my decks with Omnath as my way to like catch up against creature decks or whatever. And me thinking that it was different doesn't make it worse. And I think it might make it better for a lot of the decks and like what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually like killing your opponent is pretty nice. Yeah. And staple that to a source of card parody. Like you're just immediately rewarded on your Amnath. As we talked about, you're going to be rebuying Omnath a bunch from the graveyard and then Omnath has been in play for a couple turns now, and maybe even on the first turn, you immediately got your mana investment back. But when you're plus eight mana and eight life and also forge your opponent on turn five, that that combination of things sounds very, very good to me. Yeah, my my main thing was trying to set up uh, like Omnath plus a land drop plus like plus Fable Passage effectively in a mm -hmm. turn to just like get your mana back immediately. And uh, we, we complained about the red creature earlier, right? It's just like, why is this a thing? Only bad things are going to happen. Omnath is kind of the same thing where you play it, it immediately replaces itself. And then if you have a fake fetch land, uh, then you get to play four or five mana worth of stuff, which is either like Uro hit you for a bunch or uh, Jace with Kicker, Elspeth Conquers Death, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is... 
card advantage plus tempo plus you're gaining life in the meantime. So aggro can't kill you. Like obviously there's mana considerations or whatever, but we're in the land of uh, triomes and pathways, which makes it comically easy, especially if you're going to be base green and then you have a bunch of color fixing that way too. Yeah, that's what really put me over the edge. I tend to leave mana-based construction in the early phases of formats up to other people. Not because like I'm not capable, but I'm pretty lazy and I'm willing to just be like, okay, let this get figured out. What's the optimal way to do this? When you were like, this is laughably easy. I actually thought about the options you have. Eight triomes, there's just so much coverage there. And whatever you're missing, you're probably going to find on your flip land. And now once you look at them all laid out, you're like, oh, I'm just going to cast this on turn four whenever I want to. And it's really not going to be an issue. Or turn three, if you go down to Lotus Cobra Road right. and you know whatever mode of ramp you want to do alongside Omnath. And Lotus, Basically, Lotus I think- Cobra is also just a freebie as far as like color pips are concerned too. Right. Right. And if you find a way to keep gas flowing, which again, all of these cards do naturally, Omnath replaces itself, Uro replaces itself. So if you have a grip and have options while you're generating all this mana, just by putting a land onto the battlefield, I I just think it's going to be very easy to snowball games. And again, get huge on turns four or five. Like it's Nissa again. It's it's another way where you're yeah. doubling up on mana out of nowhere and you're skipping this entire mid-game phase of five mana, six mana, seven mana. Nope, I just go five to ten and I'm not messing with this part of the game whatsoever. Yeah, and then uh, as, as far as mana considerations, like you're also incentivized to play a lot of lands for Uro and because they have the, the DFCs. So you're just going to have a lot of different sources of colored mana anyway, right? So like that's another thing that makes uh, Omnath easy to cast, and then you have the regrowth to get it back. Like if they kill it, and this is this is just like going to be your game plan a lot of the time. Yeah, it does feel to me like the thing that is really missing is Hydroid Crisis. But your point about Jace is an actually excellent one. You get the option of again filtering through the early game playing just a three drop, but also a card that has kicker that now scales into this big must answer thing that can just steal a game from your opponent on pure card quantity. And I talked about how important card quantity is going to be. So that's a nice little payoff. And I'm sure there's going to be more modal stuff in a set with kicker where you just find ways to sink all this mana that Omnath is making and do something worthwhile. We just got away from ramp in standard. And I think we're, we're just going to be living there. Let's see. Uh, I, I will say that Omnath is a little bit better than Nissa in that it is always going to be in the Omnath deck. Like it, it yes. has to. It yeah. occupies so much space and even better than Uro in that regard, where it's like you could have Sultai, Bant, whatever. The Omnath deck is going to be the Omnath deck. So at least it's a pocket of the metagame. And maybe that makes it easier to be like, okay, this is what I have to do in order to succeed here. Also, uh, we keep mystical dispute. So, you know, that's a way to pressure this card as well. It's not as clean as Uro where you would never want to spend your dispute on an Uro, but disputing an Omnath is okay. So there's some ways to check this that weren't present with the last ramp options. I just think this card is so powerful and there's such redundancy you can build into your deck that this has to be a focal point of the next standard. Yeah, I I would be completely shocked 
if this if this was not like one of the best decks. And my article, I had four different deck lists, and there were I think three that I just kind of didn't work on much further because I wasn't as sure of them as I was of the ones that I actually put in the article. You know, so like there are a lot of different ways that you can build this, but you're definitely right where it's not going to have as deep a proliferation as Nissa because it has to do mm. a very specific thing. And Nissa just had like such low opportunity cost to, to put right. in, in your deck. So, right. That's how it ended up in every, you know, uh, reclamation deck. It was in every Simic flash deck. It just took right. up all those spaces. It's like uh, a mono green creature beatdown with like no ways to spend a bunch of mana. Yeah, whatever. I guess we'll make Nissa a big, time. Let's go. I'll make a big stone coil serpent or something. Who cares? Right. Yeah, Green Black Adventures. Sure, I'll play Anissa. Um, what's the harm? <laughs> well, that one at least had an engine, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man, cool. Uh, two and a half hours of previews. Uh, next week might be just a top 10 show probably, so that'll be good. I think so. I, I think we're at a full preview set by that point. Uh, who knows? I, I don't actually track the schedule. I just know there's a lot of cards coming at me, and it seems to be the only last two weeks now, so I would expect us to have top 10s. All right. Should we actually take a question? I mean, the show the show's been long enough, but I feel like we have to do our duty. I got a really easy question from our Discord, who of course provides us with questions on a weekly basis. Thank you, lovely Discord. Appreciate you all. Is it and is we'll- it Yo Man asking about trying to explain that Stormcaller is good? Uh, no, I I don't think that was the question I was going to go for. Because <laughs> we did that. we did that right. Yeah, kind of. Uh, I don't, I don't know that we hit the points that he was looking for, but I want to have an answer to Nick Prince's question. And Nick Prince wants to know, how many crowns has Jerry T won in Fall Guys? What is your crown count up to these days? Dude, I might be I might be the worst Fall Guys player in the world. Not true. I've, I've played with you. You generally do better than I do. Yeah, see, that's the thing, though. It's like I am, I'm very consistently in the finals, and I've literally never won. You've never won? No. I was not expecting that answer. I'm three crowns deep at this point. Dude, how? Coach me, man. <laughs> well, only thing I'm doing is the things you told me. Like when we first started playing together, I just ran around and died because I'd only played a couple times. But like there's a few strategies that I've now put in my repertoire and I'm routinely in the finals and I, you're just going to win some finals. Like it's just. You would think that, dude, I'm seriously like 0 for 50 or something. Oh, for 50? That's mind-blowing to me. I've I've only been in the finals maybe like 10 times for I've, three Ws. I've gotten, I've gotten second a lot, you know? Like maybe I'm, I might just be- I've got mass- a few seconds too. I might just be a massive choke artist. But like that's, maybe, that's maybe kind of the thing. The and like all the, all the tips that I have for you for like the random stages, it's like I've played them to death, you know? Right. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm consistently through. Like if I, if I don't clear a stage, it's because it's a team event. And I'm not playing with Cho or whatever. It's like me and randoms because otherwise Cho just carries me in every team event, basically. Right. But it's like team event. I make some massive, massive blunder, which then I try not to make again. Or something happens with the mechanics where like I just get bounced wrong and go flying or whatever. You know, like Mm. I, I just like someone touches me the wrong way and I just go flying. So what's happening on like Fall Mountain where you're not converting? Dude, I'm just I'm just never in the lead. Like. Uh, I, I had a game the other day, I think it was yesterday morning, where I spawned on the right side, had like a Perfect. pretty clear path, didn't didn't have any errors or anything. I got to the top and a, a dude on the left was just in front of me. Hmm. 
Maybe it's a mechanical failure. Maybe you uh, you don't have a good enough controller, and that's what's holding you back. Well, see, th- this this is the one specifically, like Fall Mountain, where I was I had a good spawn. I I didn't fall down at all. I had a clear path. I got like through the hammers and everything, and I I was still just second. Like I don't know. Like I I guess I didn't like pick up a boost off of one of the swinging walls or whatever, and maybe that's what happened for that person. But I don't know. Man. Okay, so I don't I don't even know what you're talking about. And I still have one multiple times. So I don't even have a concept of the boost you're talking about. So and the, I still have found a way to get to the end. They're, they're the swinging doors and like the balls come down and hit the door and the door can like hit you in the butt to like propel you forward a little bit. On Fall Mountain? Yeah. Why can I not even think of what you're talking about? Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Early on when they're they're going through like the swinging. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's basically like the first obstacle, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I always just immediately stay in the center and then hard cut to the right and hug the wall the entire way up and basically go untouched 99% of the time. And I, I've definitely blown the jump at least twice too, where I just missed the crown. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I I could I could I could rant all day, man. I, I think I'm just a choke artist. I think that's what it comes down to. All right, we're gonna make it our goal to get you a crown before this set comes out and we have to start playing magic again. Although uh, real quick, I know there's people who have to play Meaningful Historic this weekend. Mm. Pyromancer deck is dope, friends. I, I really think it is among the best choices in the format, especially because everyone picking up these mono black God Pharaoh gifts decks. Like those decks are real good, but if you just play Bedevil, I crush them routinely. Like yeah. they invest so many resources on getting to that point. It's very easy to pull ahead. I mean, Bedevil and uh, you get like copies of a braid in your sideboard and stuff. Plus you have a sure. bunch of removal to stop their, their plan B. Like I I've played that matchup from both sides and I agree with you. I think the, the Rakdos stack is pretty heavily favored, but you should, you yeah, should, and- you should post your list uh, either on Patreon or just like in the discord or something so that, that people have it because I have a feeling that like things will probably change after Zendikar and after the PT and stuff like that. Yeah, I will do that. I've been keeping people posted in uh, our Discord cool. in the historic decklist section, but a lot of changes. I was working on like some Crypt Breakers for a while as a way to mitigate the post-board rest in peace problems and just having, again, Young Pyromancer being routinely disappointing. I have unfortunately come to the conclusion that you can't play Crypt Breaker unless your deck is just loaded with zombies. Like it's just not good enough. Yeah, and even here you have Stitcher Supplier and Dreadhorde Arcanist and it doesn't matter. You just need to have a, a fistful of zombies. So I'm off that plan, but the core plan of the Rakdos Pyromancer deck is very, very good. And when you go hard on Arc Fiend's Vessel, like I haven't seen a bunch of people doing, you then get to open up those Tarmogoyf type paths that Jund used to have, where you just thought seize into Tarmogoyf and then like you're good from that point because you have this ridiculous clock. And I don't really understand passing on that because then you're a mid-range deck that's kind of bad. Right. Like you just don't put a clock against a bunch of decks. Then, so then you're usually relying on Croxa to kill people, and that takes a long time. Yeah, it can. It really can. So so keep that aggressive element of the Rakdos deck present i think it will reward you unfortunately i don't have a good answer for the rest in peace problem jerry you said you were trying riding registor i was playing rankle in both those instances obviously you lose access to your loris which is tough i've also seen hazaret but so i don't like hazaret when you're playing bedevil because you end up with dead cards in hand too often yeah i wasn't i wasn't actually playing uh registor but it was a thing that came to mind when i was thinking about how to potentially beat that because yeah, everyone was playing Cage because of Goblins, but Cage is not good against the Gift decks. 
So then it yeah. felt like more people were going to turn to like Leyline or Rest in Peace and stuff like that. And it was like, oh, I probably need an answer to this. And uh, one of the decks that I messed around with a few weeks ago was uh, different versions of Arclight Phoenix. And I built a Rakdos one that had, I think, like three Regisaurs and two Hazrets in the sideboard. So yeah, we were, we were kind of in the same place where it's like, oh, I guess this is the way you try and beat that stuff or whatever. And that was that was fine. I don't think it's actually yeah. good. I think you just yep. you scoop, you know. Yeah, I, I I don't know if it's worth giving up like the sideboard slots to try and you know get to like a thirty five percent forty percent matchup, or if you just go okay, you made this decision, and now I basically have to get lucky and hope that I thought sees you and your hand is mush because you have a bunch of rest in pieces and leyline of the boards in your hand. Um, well, hopefully you just you, can't do better than that. Hopefully, if you thought sees them, they put their leyline into play, but. Yes. No, no, I just I just mean once you've given up a card to be leyline, that's less likely that you have meaningful cards in your hand. And my yeah, thoughts yeah. is more effective. Okay, sure, sure, sure. That makes sense. Rest in peace you can actually get with your turn one thoughtsies, but leyline not gonna be quite as effective. Yeah. Uh I, I also think it's it's completely reasonable to just play like two Farika's libations and just be like, you know, maybe this'll line up, maybe it won't, it probably won't, but uh, you know, maybe my opponent will mulligan to oblivion and I'll have a pyromancer and a bunch of one ones that can attack them or something. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same as this new card we're getting. Uh, no, but no, of course not. You could you could jam one. a lot of copies of that card and, and not care. Right. Yeah, pretty happily. But it, it is something, and maybe that's the way to go as opposed to these silly rankles slash hazard slash routing regisor plans. But either way, I encourage you to check out that deck. I think it is probably the best deck in the format right now especially if you love that style of play yeah it's really the games fun, against yeah. control yeah the games against control are so much fun and i think you're a huge favorite against bant sultai all the forms of burrow control that are present i've just been crushing non-stop so word sign us out that's game uh-